wrapping up the day's sporting issues deep into the night. This is Extra Time on SENZ. I'm gonna call it now. A very good evening and welcome into SENZ. Mark Watson with you on a, a wet, windy and a very strange night indeed. It's amazing technology though, isn't it? I'm actually broadcasting from home tonight. My producer is working remotely north of Auckland and we're actually being controlled completely out of Australia. But isn't technology just a wonderful thing? Anyway, uh, tonight on the programme, an eclectic mix of sport. Looking forward to catching up with one of New Zealand's great athletes, Rod Dixon. Now, Rod Dixon's been in the North Island recently and was involved of the unveiling of a very important landmark, an important plaque at Cook's Gardens in Whanganui. Now, if you're not familiar with Rod Dixon, bronze medalist at the 1972 1500 metres and then, of course, the famous victory at the New York Marathon back in 1983, one of the great races Arguably, might just be the greatest New York marathon ever run, possibly ever won. We will talk some surf lifesaving too. Zach Franich from the Northern Region will join us on the program. A lot happening across the many different facets that make up surf lifesaving in this country, from the competitive side of it, from the volunteer side of it, and of course, with all the flooding that is going on, what role have they taken here in Auckland? Coming up after 8 o'clock, we will head across to the UK, catch up with our football correspondent, Andy Buckley. Plenty of news going on in the world of the English Premier League, FA Cup results, the draw for the fifth round. My mob, Liverpool, well, they continue their slump. They continue to lose. How much faith do the Liverpudlians have in the great Jurgen Klopp? We will wrap up the Tuatara season two with Dale Budge, just get a reflection on the Australian Baseball League. Tuatara losing their playoff against the Adelaide Giants by two games to one, and thus their season is over. The ABL final will be played between Adelaide and Perth for the Claxton Shield. All this and a lot more. Feel free, it is difficult tonight to take calls, but if you do have text, you can text the program here on double eight double three. And as we progress and as we get our system sorted out under some pretty testing conditions, we will look to try and bring you a different mix of music. Now, have we got Ben Francis with us? Ben, good evening. Hey, Watto, how are you? Very good. Fascinating, isn't it? Technology, isn't it a wonderful thing? Yeah, quite incredible, actually. Uh, just doing doing this from home and the ability for the show to be produced from Australia as well. It's quite remarkable. Yeah, so where are you at the moment? Describe what you're looking at just from a, from a flood point of view. Talk us a little bit about where you are geographically sort of in the greater Auckland region and what that has meant over the last four or five days in regards to the carnage. Well, I was actually very fortunate because I actually missed it on Friday because my partner and I, we went up north. So we, we missed it. Uh, we got kind of stuck up there, of course, because no way of getting back. So we've come back, we got back this morning, and we are prepared just in case we need to evacuate because where we are live, which is rural, got hit quite bad. So, yeah, we're just waiting. It's really just waiting to see when it hits. It's incredibly windy at the moment. Uh, you know, the waves are you know, smashing down at the beach. You know, a few k's away, so it's more of just a waiting game at the moment, but just trying to be a bit weary as well, just in case something bad does happen. 
Okay, Ben. Um, now, we do have some music that we are looking to try and play throughout the evening, which we are just trying to load into the system. One thing that you've been bringing to the table is a, a, a music theme. Uh, we've had some interesting things. We've had songs with the harmonica in it. We've had songs with the saxophone in it. And ultimately, we then ultimately try and determine which we think are the most famous songs um, and live live up to the theme the most. I think we had even one where we had names in a song, and I think we decided, what was it, Billie Jean from Michael Jackson? Yeah, that sounds right from memory, yeah. That was the, the one that came out on top. So what have we got tonight? Uh, we're going to aim to do New Zealand number one songs, so songs from New Zealand artists that top the New Zealand music charts. Okay, well that'll be that'll be a bit harder for people to that'll be a bit harder, won't it, for people to um uh, to just text in and give some thought to because they're not always immediate. And I think sometimes people are not even aware that some really poppy songs or some songs that they know well might even be purely New Zealand. Exactly, and you can even go back quite a few years as well. We've got some more recent songs as well. I was going through some of the lists myself and I didn't even realise that some of these songs actually made it to number one and in saying that as well I was quite surprised there were some songs that didn't make number one on the same flip side so it's just something a bit different tonight you know New Zealand's getting hit, hit pretty hard at the moment so we'll try and have a bit of a Kiwi theme It's been just a terrible summer hasn't it? Terrible summer. Ironically ironically, this will sound strange but as bad as the weather is at the moment because it's coming from the east and I live out on the west coast, the surf has been excellent, really, really good. In fact, both my son and my daughter uh, went surfing a couple of hours ago with friends and are still surfing, such are the conditions being just so, so good. So it's um, strange how some people can, yeah, some people, I, I, I guess, really doing it tough and other people maybe just a little bit more fortunate. Yeah, so I might have to come out your way then, Water, if that's the case, if the waves are that good. If we have to evacuate, we might just have to do a quick dash to good old Uruguay. Yeah, well, it's still not a beach where you want to confuse ability with ambition, mate. There is a lot of moving water out here, as you know. Yeah, definitely do know that. Seen it firsthand. Hey. Hey, um, you've been privileged on a number of times. We've spoken to Rod Dixon, and I know that Daniel McCarty and Grant Elliott have spoken to him as well, one of the great New Zealand runners, cross-country world championship medals, New York Marathon 1983, Olympic Games 1972, um, bronze, fourth in the 5,000 in 1976. He's been very lucky uh, over the last week where he got to unveil a very, very important plaque. Um, you probably didn't know much about Rod Dixon until you started on radio being, being slightly younger than myself. Yeah I, I, yeah, I must admit, I didn't know a lot about him, but when I first heard him jump on the Saturday session with Daniel and Grant, oh, no, it was you and Grant that did it that day, uh, it was absolutely fascinating to hear in his story and how I guess how important it is to stick to a plan. He went into uh, the New York Marathon, I believe it was, with a plan, and even though it wasn't exactly going his way, he stuck at it, and then with just a few hundred yards to go, he managed to cross the line first and win. And just hearing sort of things, those kind of quirky little stories about him and the, the the great things that came afterwards with him winning such a prestigious race was really cool. And 
I find them incredibly fascinating, so I'm really looking forward to hearing them very shortly. Yeah, well, I'll give people a little teaser because we're going to take a break and come to him very shortly. But the World Heritage, there's been a World Heritage plaque bestowed by World Athletics to commemorate the 60th anniversary of the first world mile record now set by the great Peter Snell. And so it recognises Sir Peter as one of the, as a legend. But what it also does is that they have recognised Cook's Gardens in Whanganui, um, which has seen, I think, around 75 sub-four-minute mile performances over the years. And so it has been recognised with what they call a World Athletics Landmark. Now, the plaque was unveiled by our next guest on the programme, the great Rod Dixon. So we'll find out a little bit more about Cook's Gardens, his memories, why it is seen internationally as one of the great running tracks and one of the great athletic locations, and just find out a little bit about what he has been doing recently up in the North Island. So we'll do that next. You're listening to SENZ. Mark Watson with you through to 11 o'clock. Uh, well, welcome back into SENZ. Mark Watson uh, with you here on uh, the programme as we broadcast out of our individual homes in some very testing conditions. We have the uh, wind blowing from the east, which means that the wind out here on the west coast is great. And I'm just looking out the window at the moment and the surf is good. Got to say, I've got to say, it is amazing how big the surfing community in this country is. It's... I was down at the beach yesterday and there would have been three to 400 people out surfing. The car parks were absolutely jammed, absolutely jammed. And I thought, wow, this has moved from being a niche sport to a mainstream sport. Part of it, I think, is because of the soft tops and the equipment and the accessibility. Surfing being become main, more mainstream courtesy of satellite television. But it's also in a country of five million people, it's another sport that are taking people away from our more traditional sports, rugby, netball, league, and cricket. You throw mountain biking in the mix. You throw sports like golf in the mix. We've seen a resurgence in athletics. You look at a lot of sports that were never really part of the landscape historically that are now becoming part of the landscape. Sports like lacrosse, women's sevens. And the point is, women's rugby while it's starting to grow, you would have to say men's rugby is very much under threat in terms of player numbers and also interest. And I bring that up because it is a point that I want to look at a little bit later. Interesting article in the UK I read today about the possible death of rugby and also this ridiculous rule that New Zealand rugby have brought in where no super rugby, no all black can play any more than five consecutive games of super rugby before they must be rested. So what we're going to have at situations in Super Rugby is you're basically going to have some development teams. We've already got interest in the game in terms of player numbers, television in decline, because nobody these days can actually go and watch or see their best players because it's all about the All Blacks. And when are these guys going to wake up, do an environmental scan and realise they're no longer the top dog that New Zealand has evolved? It's no longer rugby racing and beer. Anyway, I want to change it up. I want to switch to the sport that I truly love, the sport that inspired me to want to be a sports commentator, to get into radio, and that is the sport of athletics. I was very lucky in the 1970s to grow up with the likes of Dick Quacks, Rod Dixon, and the great Sir John Walker. Used to go to the Pam Am track meets at Mount Smart Stadium and um, watch the likes of the Raylene Boyles, 
uh, the Dave Moorcrofts. Um, it was a really, really cool time as a young kid. And I never, ever thought in my life that I would get to know and almost on a personal level get to know him, uh, my next guest, the great Rod Dixon. Uh, he joins us on the program. Rod, good evening. Welcome. Have we... Okay, we don't have Rod Dixon at the moment. Okay, so we'll just see if we can put a call into Rod. But we haven't got Rod Dixon at the moment. Not sure, it's just a few technical issues perhaps. Because it's been an interesting um, development over the weekend. The World Heritage There was a World Heritage plaque bestowed by World Athletics to jointly commemorate the 60th anniversary of the first world mile record set by Sir Peter Snell and to recognise the historic Cook's Gardens in Whanganui. Um, and it was officially unveiled at the venue as part of the Pack and Save Cook's Classic on Saturday. Now, 12 months ago, World Athletics announced that Sir Peter Snell, the three-time Olympic middle distance champion and, athlete and New Zealand Athlete of the Century, would be honoured with the World Heritage Plaque in the posthumous category of legend. The plaque jointly recognises Cook's Gardens in Whanganui, whose grass track was the venue for Snell's epic 3 minutes 54.4. Now, that was run on the 27th of January 1962, which clipped one-tenth of a second off Herb Elliott's world record. Now, Cook's Garden, which since 1996 has had a synthetic track, boasted distinguished history as a venue of outstanding middle-distance performances, and it receives a plaque in the category of a landmark. Dubbed the home of the mile, Cook's Garden emerged on the global stage thanks to Snell's world mile record set 61 years ago. Now, in total, Cook's Garden has witnessed 75 sub-four-minute mile performances with four athletes dipping below the barrier in the mile race last weekend, won by up-and-comer and the man who finished sixth at the Commonwealth Games last year, Sam Tanner. And so really, really cool for Cook's Gardens, really, really cool for the community of Whanganui. Now, Rod Dixon, along with Athletics New Zealand President Karen Gillam-Green, officially unveiled the World Heritage Plaque at Cook's Gardens. So what we'll do is we will take a break and then we'll come back and catch up with Rod Dixon and try and bring some context to this iconic venue and the occasion and what his memories of that great venue holds for him and his memories of the great Peter Snell. We'll do that next. You're listening to SENZ. Welcome back into SENZ. Mark Watson with you, broadcasting from home in a very unique situation due to the weather bomb that has hit the upper North Island. Look, hopefully everybody up there is taking care. Um, and hopefully, hopefully um, tonight here on radio, this can be just a bit of a distraction. Um, you know, sometimes maybe we do take sport too seriously, but um, it is also just a really, really nice way to escape. They say the happiest time in the UK for a lot of people is 10 minutes to three on a Saturday. And that is more symbolic of the fact that is when football kicks off. Could understand over there, a lot of blue collar, uh, a lot of cities. A lot of famous football towns do it pretty tough and football is escapism for them. And so if you have been affected by the floods and we're just over this bad weather, hopefully my next interview will put a bit of a smile on your face. We mentioned this unique occasion of Whanganui and Cook's Gardens being recognised by World Athletics. It's um, 
being given what they call the World Athletics Landmark Plaque at the same time. Our athlete of the century, Sir Peter Snell, was basically given legend status by World Athletics. The man who unveiled those plaques is my guest on the program. He was a bronze medalist at the 1972 1500 metres at the Olympics and, of course, the famous New York Marathon in 1983, the great Rod Dixon. Rod Dixon, good evening. Welcome. Good evening, Mark, and everybody. Uh, And, you know, out to the New Zealand community because Auckland's going through incredible, incredible um, challenge. And we, the New Zealanders, are supporting them with blessings and prayers and and everything. So, yeah. Yeah. Now, Rod, you've recently been up on the North Island. Um, It all culminated in this uh, great privilege of you being able to unveil these World Heritage plaques and these landmark plaques by World Athletics. But... That's not yes. the only thing you did when you were here in the North Island. It gave you an opportunity to catch up with some good mates. Oh, absolutely, Mark. It was just uh, incredible. Um, so, uh, first of all, uh, I think probably, I mean, obviously the first thing was family. And uh, it was great to have a time with the family uh, after uh, a couple of years of being kind of, you know, here and there. And then, um, and then, wonderfully, uh, July, uh, January, January twelfth, uh, with John Walker for his seventy-first birthday, uh, and that was very, very special uh, to be invited by Helen, Lady Helen, we should say, Lady Helen, and the family uh, to share time uh, with John and and uh, to to see him blow out the candle and the cake and <laughs> yeah, but. And, and also, too, to share special memories, which John responded to with, you could feel it. You could feel the energy. You could feel the emotion. He wasn't able to quite express it, but he still uh, was able to share that moment with us all. And for, for those who are listening, and I'm not sure, but our, our great Olympic hero, Sir John Walker, uh, is into the sixteenth year of Parkinson's, and and it's um, it, it's a heartbreaker. But the fact is that it's always great to be with him and to hug him and to share time with the family. Uh, yeah, mag- magical. Uh, I went on to Taronga to see um, uh, Julian Oakley and Santana, the great New Zealand uh, middle distance runners, and our legend. Uh, Kevin Ryan and his wife Jeanette and Kevin has finally retired from making shoes for champions all over the world with New Balance and Reebok and Adidas. Uh, just an incredible, and of course, in his day, fifth at the Boston uh, Boston Marathon, uh, 1973, uh, representative uh, at the Pacific Conference Games in Canada, uh, 74 Commonwealth Games in, in uh, Christchurch, one of our real legends and um, trained by Barry McGee, um, very uh, fabulous guy, um, and Kerry Hill. Kerry Hill was one of our greatest coaches of sprint and sprint short distance. So wonderful to catch up with Kerry and the family and and Venera uh, at uh, had a birthday. So it's just been just a magical, 
magical uh, New Year, Christmas, New Year, and catching up with these amazing friends. And now I'm back in Nelson and ready for a, a challenge. Mm. Uh, we're going to be putting together the Kids Marathon program together with uh, our new mayor here in Nelson, uh, the Honourable Nick Smith, who wants to ensure that every, every kid, well, we should say no kid left behind, every kid in elementary school gets the opportunity to participate in ABC, which is Agility Balance Coordination. So it's just been incredible, Mark. I want to talk about Cook's Gardens because it's been 61 years since Peter Snell broke the world record for the mile there in a time of 354.4, beating Herb Elliott's world record. It's a venue that has seen 75 athletes break sub four minutes for the mile and World Athletics commemorated it by giving Cook's Gardens a landmark plaque and giving Sir Peter Snell a World Heritage plaque posthumously under the category of legend. What are your memories of Cook's Gardens and just how special is this place? Oh, <laughs> well, you said it all there, Mark. Um, it is um, 75 athletes have run the sub four minute mile there. Um, it, it, I went there in and I should say 1971, <laughs> last century. Um, so it was really a significant moment when I was invited there. And in, those, in that time, Tony Polhill had won the British 1500-metre title. And when they called me and they said, we want this young boy from Nelson, I hadn't done anything, really. And, and Russell Sears called me from Wanganui and he said, we want to invite you because we think we can run the, we can host a soft four-minute mile. And I, I went up and I was just overwhelmed by the, the generosity of people, the, the wonderful feeling, the warmth of people, the community who were so enthusiastic. And, of course, in those days, the cycling track was around the, the, the grass running track and so running and cycling. Uh, Ron Cheatley, Ron Cheatley, who's a legend in cycling, he, he was there and, and, of course, he's still there. <laughs> um, but it was just incredible. And we ran the mile, and I won the mile in four minutes, zero, zero, zero point one. So I was one hundredth of a second off breaking the four minute mile. And that was <laughs> that was pretty devastating. I... I, uh, but nevertheless, it, it sparked a whole new era. And Kevin Ross was a, a, a New Zealand 800-metre champion, 1,500-metre champion. And really, and then, of course, in 1970, Dick Quacks uh, won a silver medal at the Commonwealth Games in Edinburgh. And it just sparked off a whole new generation of running inspired by Peter Snell, Murray Hilberg, Bill Bailey, Barry McGee, these incredible people who had set the world by one mile world record and Olympic champions and Olympic record holders. It was just a whole new era. And wonderfully, talking with Santana, who ran a brilliant race, 354.8, to win the Brooks Classic, 
and uh, he's probably on his way now to Melrose Games and New York and the Boston race. And but you know these young kids today, they appreciate the heritage and the history of Wanganui. And I said to Russell Sears, I said, Russell, this has got to be the home of the mile. I know everybody wants Italy Road and Sir Roger Bannister, but I said, New Zealand has a very unique stadium here at Cook's Gardens where 75 runners have run under four minutes for a mile. And that, in our sport, is significant, really, of uh, any other what's going on in the world. Uh, yeah, Rod, it's interesting because people still might not realise this, but almost three many, three times as many people have climbed to the top of Mount Everest and have run sub four minute miles. I mean, these days, if you've got a lot of money, if, these days, if you've got a lot of money and you're, and you're sort of fit, you can always pay to be taken to the top of Mount Everest. You <laughs> cannot buy your way. You cannot buy your way through a sub four minute mile. It knows no names, it knows no reputation, socioeconomic backgrounds, religion, race, or creed. Right. I love it, Mark. You've done your homework because, yes, and you know that um, I I was inspired by Sir Edmund Hillary and, and he became, a, he was the patron for the Kids Marathon running program. I could go and, and have a, a cup of tea with him in his house in Remuera. And and, and, and I, I said to him one day, and that was when he was still alive, that twice as many people have now climbed Mount Everest and have run a sub four minute mile and he was he was very aware of that fact uh, I think he was a little disappointed about what was going on and the and and the um, uh, the the aftermath of all these people climbing especially you know garbage and everything else left on the mountain he was a bit a bit distraught about that I'm hoping that they have made improvements on that but it is, as you say, Mark. Um, we, we, you know, you can anyone can climb Mount Everest now, uh, but you can't. You've still got to do the hard work uh, to, to run a sub four minute mile, and, and and of course, you know, when Roger Bannister did it in 1952, and uh, and then opened the floodgates to you know, uh, um, uh, uh, John Landy from Australia, then breaking it. And then, of course, you know, later on, Jürgen May and, and, and the history of it is just fascinating. And that's why, you know, Mark, with my kids' running program, we have 26.2 miles to the marathon. And the final, the final mile is a significant moment for these kids. And in New Zealand, kids are starting to talk about 26.2 and running the mile. And so I want that. Gener the next generation to know that the mile is very, very special, uh, a very special event and a very special uh, historical heritage moment for our sport. Where were you? I mean, I would imagine you might have just been in your teenage years or maybe 11 or 12 at the time when Peter Snell broke that mile in 1962. And how big a story was it and how did it change athletics in this country? Yes. Well, I was I was ten years old, and just, just and we were actually I was in the school athletics, but we weren't able to join a running club which had harriers and and track until you were twelve. But certainly, at ten years old, 
I was the fastest 100 meter runner in our school. And wonderfully, our fourth grade teacher was a runner. And he told us about the history. He told us about running. And we all thought that running was fabulous. And the whole school would go out and run right around the school ground every lunchtime. They, after the, after the uh, recess bell for lunch, you had to sit down and have your lunch. But after that, they would have a, they, we had a fire bell that rang, rang, rang. And every, all the kids got up and ran around the school ground and I think Monday, Wednesdays, Fridays, clockwise, Tuesdays and Thursdays, counterclockwise. So, you know, it was very much uh, run, jump, play, fun time uh, for us kids. And running was very much part of the culture of the school that I grew up in. You're listening to SENZ. The great Rod Dixon is my guest on the program after Cook's Garden and Wanganui is recognised by World Athletics and Peter Snell also recognised under legend status by World Athletics. It's a funny thing, though, isn't it, Rod, when you look at New Zealand and its history in athletics, these days a lot of athletes will go to altitude. But in the 60s, in the 70s, a lot of international runners came to New Zealand to train. One Tree Hill would come and run Arthur Lydiard's famous Waiatarua, and the Waiatarua is basically the Waitakere Rangers. I've always thought that's another loop that should be recognised, whether it be recognised by... World Athletics or whether it be recognised here by the Council, by Auckland or by Athletics New Zealand because that in itself is a very historical loop. That was very much a key part of the diet for that Lydiard era and was pretty much every Sunday, every day, every week of the year and when you read the Lydiard stories, you read your histories, you read Rod Dixon's, John Walker's, you'll always find the word Waiatarua, the 18 mile or or the 18 or the 22 mile loop that Lydia had, had you guys run or that future coaches had you run? Yes, there was a, it was, I remember I came up uh, from Nelson with a guy called Ross Parsonage, who really, he was <clears throat> already a marathon runner at a young age. He just was a, just able to run like Forrest Gump. You know, he was just amazing. And I remember we came up and we went up to Waitarua, uh, I think I don't think we ran the 18 or 20, but I think it was a 15 miler. And <clears throat> I was, I, I, you know, we went to the waterfall where Snell and Helberg and Bailey and Lydiard all took their, splashed their water and drank the water. And that was, that was incredible. It was an incredible feeling that you were in their footsteps and drinking the Drinking from the fountain, you know, well, it was a creek or <laughs> a, a little uh, um, a waterfall. And, and all that was just very, very fascinating. And also, too, I mean, uh, at the domain, the, the one-mile loop around there, that that became famous from runners. And runners went all over the world would come and run that. And also, too, One Tree Hill. There was a loop there. And, and over the stone wall, you know, like they, they did cross-country back in England days 200 years earlier. And so and, and New Zealand does have a very historical uh, uh, journey for running. And, uh, and wonderfully, you know, the, the Auckland Marathon and the uh, Queenstown Marathon and the Hawke's Bay Marathon encourage uh, those people who come from overseas to run those races 
to encourage them to go to those historical or heritage points so that they too can join the journey. I mean, my big thing was, of course, to, to run the Fifth Avenue Mile in New York, to run the Philadelphia Distance Run, to run the Cascade Runoff in, in, uh, in, 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 in uh, Oregon, um, to go to where uh, Bill, Bill Bowman, the coach of the Oregon four by one mile relay team there. So all these moments have been, and of course, my special moment was to run on uh, Ifley Road, Ifley Road, to run on the actual track that Roger Bannister ran. So all these moments, young kids today have got to be seen to be connecting to their past because it is part of their future. Yeah, it's interesting too, isn't it? I mean, arguably, when you look at athletics, I mean, the name that stands out amongst all in terms of his contribution is Arthur Lydiard, and everybody thought that Arthur Lydiard, well, he went out there, he did a marathon twice a day, and he came up with this optimal training mileage of 100 miles a week, and that's been disputed. Some people say, look, probably 80 mile, but that's not the point. What people forget, and I'll get you to comment on this, what Arthur Lydiard actually gave the world was periodization, wasn't it? We hear the word, yes. we want you to peak, we want, we're in a training phase, we're in a build phase. Well, that was Lydiard, wasn't it? Base work, strength yes. work, speed work. Yes, yes. And, and and that was the, if we say that was the foundation, that was the foundation of the pyramid. And and uh, and, and incredibly, and I was, and I, if I may, uh, Lorraine Moller, an absolute legend, uh, pioneer woman running along with people like Millie Sampson and uh, Ann Smith and... and uh, Val Robinson, who, you know, redefined the woman's ability to run uh, more than a mile, you know, because in those days they weren't allowed to. Um, and so Lorraine has been able to carefully uh, redefine and, and, and use the Lydiard system, the Lydiard principles and philosophy, and have built it to a certification program for people all over the world to become aware of what is required and to balance it. And so the Lydiard principles and process continue through these incredible people like Lorraine Moller and other coaches around the world. And, and really, no one has been able to say, well, we've got a better system. No one has been able to create because Lydia was way before his time. And I, and I got to give Percy Cerati, who trained uh, Herb Elliott in Australia, he was very much too like a Lydia. And when you looked at this idea and Franz Stample, who created the Parklick system, and, and all this together have allowed athletes all over the world to be where, what they are today. No doubt about it. No doubt about it, Mark. Rod well, Dixon, as always, an absolute privilege and a pleasure to have you on the program, mate. Greatly appreciated, and congratulations on being given the honour of unveiling those plaques at Cook's Gardens over the weekend. Thank you, Mark. The great Rod Dixon there. It is amazing, just the absolutely iconic pieces of geography, uh, tracks that we have in this country, that if you go back through the history of athletics, were a big part in the establishment of the sport when really the whole jogging movement, the whole running revolution took off towards the end of the 1960s and well into the 70s, whether it be One Tree Hill, whether it be Cook's Gardens, the famous Waiatarua, 
And I'm sure that every little community around the country has that loop, that famous running loop, that one loop that the famous runner out of your town ran. And so I'd love you to maybe jump on the phone, give us a call on 0800 150 That's 0800 150 or text your thoughts here on 8833. We'll take a break. You're listening to SENZ. You're listening to SENZ, Mark Watson with you. Uh, with you. Yeah, I am with you. I'm actually broadcasting from home, courtesy of some technology. Uh, just due to the weather warnings in Auckland, we've been warned that our building is not, well, not, it's not unsafe, but I've got to be honest, it was flooded out on Friday. So just for cautionary reasons, um, I'm sitting at home in Auckland and on the West Coast. I've got my producer, Ben, uh, sitting at home just a little bit further north of me. And we've got Nick pulling the strings in Melbourne, Australia. It is wonderful technology. Uh, look, we've got Zach Franich on the program around about 8.30 tonight. Going to talk surf lifesaving. Going to have a chat to him about uh, their role in this flooding, um, the competitive side of the sport, what's been going on. I know there's been a lot of regional championships going on around the country too. Um, and also just have a chat about water safety. As always, over the summer period, there has been a lot of drownings. Um, and again, it's just reminding people that sort of she'll be right attitude it's okay in the backyard shed but it's not necessarily okay in and around water and so i just want to get some of those messages back across to you uh look if you've just listened to the interview with um, rod dixon just talking athletics and famous landmarks um that have been a key contributor to a sport not just here in new zealand but also globally Maybe text them in to us on double eight double three, and I can get um, Nick a little bit later to read those out. Um, you can also find the program on 0800 150811 because I was just thinking, I mean, Western Springs, one of the great speedway tracks and its place in speedway history. You've got Cook's Gardens. I know that here in Auckland, we look at Eden Park and... Probably most of us would like a waterfront stadium because Eden Park, let's be honest, it's been described and aptly described at times as basically a cemetery with chips. Uh, but yet overseas, it is absolutely idolised. There's a real romance about Eden Park, particularly in countries like France, are famous clearly for its contribution to international rugby. But just those little gems that <coughs> lie around the country that maybe have reached beyond simply here in New Zealand. I know there are a lot of um, motorsport tracks around the country that historically had some of the biggest names in the world driving here, maybe not more in recent times, and perhaps that history has been lost on a generation. So if you've got any thoughts, you can text us here on 8833. Uh, interesting, just the uh, why Aotearoa, why um, slightly different loop these days than running from Arthur Lydiard's house in Wainwright Avenue and sort of Mount Roskill, Mount Albert. A lot of runners these days will park up in Titarangi and pick up the loop. And I've got to say that I romanticised it and when I did become a full-time athlete there in my 20s, it's something we ran a lot. And I often remember coming down from the TV mast in the Waitakere's and I'd be running with some very good New Zealand runners at the time, the likes of Alan Bunce and Phil Clode and Dale Warren and Michael H and, of course, my good mate Cameron Brown, Ironman champion. 
And you'd come down on some really misty mornings on a Sunday, 8 o'clock, 8.30, and you could just feel the spiritual home, I'd call it. You could just feel the history. You could feel like you were running in the footsteps of giants that had gone before you. Um, and it still has that feel about it. Waitakere, it's still a regional park, so it's still, you know, around the base of the Waitakere Ranges. Yes, there's a lot more housing development, but seeing it drive itself and what we call Opanuku Road or West Coast Road, um, the road itself in terms of its gradient hasn't changed. And the further you get up West Coast Road, um, it still has that sort of original essence to it. But yeah, really, really special place. And I always felt, and talking to a lot of the runners during that era, that you always knew you were in good shape if you could run that loop well, but recover from it. It's all very well running well, but you've actually got to be able to back it up the next day with more training to actually be able to recover from it. And uh, one of the great privileges was to be able to go run that with, I guess, that current crop of runner um, during the late 1990s and through that first decade of the 2000s. There are still groups who will run it now, a lot more triathletes doing it. But the one thing you've noticed with the way I threw it is a lot more cyclists now ride it. Never used to see a lot of cyclists riding it. Now with the growth of the sport of cycling, uh, Waitakere Ranges in Auckland has become a real training ground for recreational and sort of um, those people that take triathlon seriously, that take road cycling a bit more seriously. It is a really, really special place. You can sort of ride and drop down into Piha, which is one of the great views, good climb coming out of that. Got Kerry Kerry Beach. Um, and of course, you can ride through to Swanson, uh, Ra Nui, which has been hit really heavily by flooding at the moment. So yeah, it's amazing if you just have a look around your city and I'm pretty sure every town's got its famous little loops and it's famous little hill like Boston Marathon has the Heartbreak Hill and um, is it a Heartbreak Hill? Not really, it's more about where it's positioned and how far into the marathon it comes and any other day it's probably quite a moderate gradient but put it into a certain distance of a race and suddenly feel like you're climbing Mount Everest. Uh, just a reminder too, Andy Buckley coming up on the programme um, after 8 o'clock we're going to talk some English Premier League football uh, round fifth round of the FA Cup has been drawn. Still a number of fourth round replays that need to be played out due to due to the nature of the uh, draws that happened overnight. Uh, but what's happened to Liverpool? Sean Dyche coming in as manager of Everton. So we'll look at all of those issues coming up in the next hour here on SENZ. 2023. You're listening to SENZ on a very stormy night here in Auckland. Hopefully the rain stays away and we don't add to the terrible flooding situation that we've had in Auckland over the last four or five days. And for those people up in Northland and now through the Bay of Plenty, it has been absolutely horrific. Technology is a wonderful thing. I'm broadcasting this show from my telephone at home. I've got a panel operator out of Melbourne, Australia, and we've got Ben Francis, my producer, probably around about 30 kilometres further north of me in a very prone, flood-prone region, so hopefully he doesn't have to be evacuated. Um, look, sport, we can take it quite seriously at times. We can get quite animated. We can get quite worked up. 
And I guess when life's going normal, we're probably entitled to do that. But when you have situations like we've had here in Auckland, you sort of put sport in context a little bit, don't you? Um, we put those rivalries in context. We can have the Auckland v Canterbury hate and rugby. We can have those people south of the Bombays dishing on, dissing on Auckland. But I'd like to think that when something of this significant goes down, we all come together as people did with the Christchurch earthquakes. Hopefully, if you're listening to SENZ, we put a bit of a smile on your dial and we provide just that little bit of escapism. We are going to talk some English Premier League football now with our man out of the UK, our Manchester City commentator. I'm, it just doesn't ring right, Manchester City. I'm a Liverpool man. I've got to say Manchester City. Anyway, Andy Buckley, good evening. Welcome. Okay, we'll have a chat to Ben then. Okay, sorry. So I've just heard that we haven't got Andy up just yet, but we've got Ben on the line. So let's go and have a chat to Ben. Ben is producing tonight. Ben, are you still, still above water? Yeah, so far, mate. Um, I can I can try and talk some FA Cup with you if you like, though. Well, why? Liverpool are out of it. Who cares about the FA Cup? The fact we won it last year meant absolutely everything. We're suddenly out of it this year. It absolutely, well, it's just a trivial trophy, isn't it? Good luck with that one. <laughs> Well, mate, you can't win them all, can you? Mm. Uh, interesting chat with Rod Dixon. I love talking athletics. I just love the history of athletics in this country. It's my thing. Anyone ask me what's my moment, what do I love the most about sport, I can go back and look at some great all-black moments and great rugby league moments, but it's athletics for me. Yeah, you know, whenever you do talk to Rod, uh, you can always hear that excitement in your voice about even just how Rod talks and his stories, you know, he's talking about um, seeing John Walker and how much that meant to him again and everything like that. So he's always good to hear from Rod. Yeah. It's interesting, though, isn't it, that more people, it's almost three times as many now have climbed to the top of Mount Everest than have run sub four minute miles. And, um, you know, we get someone breaking four minutes via the mile, uh, like we did with Sam Tanner running 354, and it seems lost on a lot of people. Yet when a former cricketer like Adam Perori climbs to the top of Mount Everest, um, somehow we think it's the be-all and end-all. And you go, well, yeah, I challenge any former international sports person in their 30s and 40s or any sports person in their 20s just getting into running to try and get remotely close to running a sub-four-minute mile. Oh, I couldn't imagine, I couldn't imagine doing that. It would take quite a lot of effort for me to manage that. I might be able to run 100 metres in four minutes if I'm lucky. <laughs> oh no! I, I, I tell you what you should do is like try and break the four-minute mile down to sixty seconds, right? So sixty seconds per four hundreds. You've got to throw. You've got to throw um, an extra six meters in there, which actually is what actually prevents a lot of people from getting under four minutes. But try and run sixty seconds. See how far you go running four hundred. Then try and put it in context. If you can break ninety seconds, you're doing well. If you can break a hundred seconds, you're probably doing well. If you can get around eighty seconds, you're probably lying flat on the track feeling like you're going to have a cardiac arrest, then try and take a further 20 seconds off that, then run it four times consecutively without a break, throw another six metres on it, and you're sort of sitting right on for four minutes. So oh, I always encourage people who yeah, don't quite understand the significance of the achievement. Oh, I, I think I'd be the one on the ground having a cardiac arrest, to be honest. It's, mm. <laughs> it sounds absolutely horrible. Yeah. No, it is. Anyway, I can tell you, we've got the Velvet Voice. We've got Mr. Manchester City on the line right now. Andy Buckley, good evening. Welcome. Good evening. How are you? Good. You're a four-minute miler, sub-four-minute miler? Uh, well, give me six minutes. I'm, I'm there. I'm your man. 
<laughs> six minutes for the mile. That's pretty solid. <laughs> well, yeah, in the car. <laughs> uh, Andy, Everton have named a new manager and Burnley fans, well, I, I'd imagine they'll be, yeah, they'll probably be indifferent in regards to Sean Dyche's promotion. Yeah, it's a question of staying up, I think, uh, although I did read somewhere saying, well, why don't we go down for a season and, uh, you know, just uh, suffer our punishment for all the uh, misfortune we've had and bad leadership management uh, at board level and uh, and come back stronger. Uh, but I don't think for one moment he wants to go down. Uh, obviously, there's a financial uh, risk as well, and there's also a great risk you might never come back up again. So... Uh, yeah, Sean Dyche, I think he's probably the best appointment, I would have thought, in the circumstances and with what's out there and what Everton can really realistically achieve in terms of their uh, status at the moment. So, we've got a chance of keeping them up. Um, better than I, I would have thought than Bielsa. Uh, I'm not sure about Bielsa, a bit of a maverick, really, and I'm not sure whether Everton's style would uh, be the players that they've got would be suited to the way that he plays football. So, uh, I think they've got a decent chance of staying up, actually, with uh, Sean Dash in, start, in charge. Yeah, what sort of coaching style does Sean Dyche bring? And I'd imagine it would probably be hard, wouldn't it, not knowing whether they're going to stay in the English Premier League to probably attract a genuine, world-class, innovative young coach. Um, because, let's be honest, uh, you know, a lot of uncertainty. And coaches themselves have to also... Uh, have to orchestrate their pathway very carefully as well. Indeed. Uh, I mean, he's got this reputation for what he did at Burnley, where obviously he managed on limited funds. So we can only really judge him on that over a period of time as well, a great period of time. Um, still quite, quite, quite a few games left for Everton, and you'd have thought that they've got more quality in their squad than they've shown this season. People like James Tarkovsky was with him at Burnley. Uh, he's a decent defender. He's played for England. Um, so it's up to him, really, to get that uh, that organisation. Um, and it, I don't think it's going to be pretty, to be honest with you. I think it's going to be very much sort of a bit of a dogs-of-war type uh, approach that Joe Royal used to adopt for Everton many decades ago now. Uh, it, 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 but it, it needs must, and, it, 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 you know, it's... it's uh, the priority is to stay up. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's a decent appointment um, and I don't think the Everton fans really will have too much to moan about. You know, the days of getting Ancelotti and, and the, the glamour names are, are, are gone for the moment because uh, they're a team really, in, well, they're very much in crisis. Yeah, but, but do they recognise that this is not just a coaching issue, that there is something wrong with the infrastructure that... Um, I'm not sure that, you know, a, a fish rots from the head down. Yeah, no, I think there is an acceptance, that, which is why they've been this process against the board. Uh, they need a new regime um, and it's just not worked out uh, for Everton at all. It's just it, uh, over many years. So it's, it's not really a, a problem of, of Frank Lampard as much as anything. I'm not sure about Frank Lampard's managerial pedigree because uh, he's not covered in himself in glory in his sort of fledgling management career but yeah the, the problems run deep at Everton the fans know that uh, and it, it still doesn't get away from the problem that they want um, 
a change of, of board. It's, it's a bit of a, a tricky one, really, because if you use the Manchester United comparison, they're doing well under Eric, Eric Ten Hag, and uh, suddenly the the fans have gone a little bit quiet on the we want the Glazers out front, and yet that's been their kind of long-running campaign to get rid of the, the owners. They still want to change the ownership, but uh, suddenly when you get a bit of success, <laughs> and that's what the owners want at any football club, don't they? A bit of success, and then suddenly... Uh, the pressure's off them and the spotlight's on, on the field rather than on the dugout and on the boardroom. Mm. Um, Andy, let's talk about the FA Cup. Look, it was a couple of weeks ago I spoke and Liverpool were playing Brighton in the English Premier League. I sort of felt that Liverpool might lose that. You're a little bit more optimistic. They ended up losing to Brighton, getting thrashed basically 3-0 or 3-1. They've just been knocked out of the FA Cup by Brighton again by two goals to one. Their season is well and truly in crisis. What's the general discussion in and around Liverpool Football Club and uh, the path they need to go down? Are, pe- are, are people patient here? Are, are they prepared to give Jurgen Klopp time? Are, are people calling for his head? No, no, I don't think so. I think... Uh, He's got enough credit in the bank to uh, earn another season, really, at least. Um, and I think they've, they've more or less written off this season, the Liverpool fans, I think, in terms of, uh, yeah, all right, they're playing Real Madrid in the Champions League, so there's still that kind of uh, uh, carrot in front of them. Uh, but, uh, yeah, in terms of their ability to, to win it, I would have thought that even I'm going around to the way of thinking now that I've been trying to support Liverpool because, obviously... You accuse me of Manchester City bias, which is understandable, quite correct. But I'm thinking, well, Liverpool have got to come good, and, and they haven't come good. And I watched uh, the end of the game at Brighton on Sunday in the FA Cup, and uh, it was quite ridiculous, really, the way that Liverpool had just sort of completely lost the, the plot. Fabinho lost the plot, should have been sent off. I mean, there was absolute uproar. The fact that he ne- that the, the VAR uh, never intervened and said, hang on a minute, that yellow card one of his challenges should be a red card. Oh, unbelievable. Even his body language suggested as though I should need to be sent off for that challenge. But going back to your point about Liverpool and the way that they've imploded, uh, I think that he's, he's made a mistake plot, uh, plot because he's, you know, he's persevered with players that really have, have been found wanting. Fabinho, one of them, hasn't, hasn't done it. Um, Henderson... Um, Milner's sort of steady Eddie still. You can't really expect that much from Henderson, from Milner, bearing in mind his age. Uh, and, and, and he's bought strikers, really, to try and replace Mane, because uh, he's got Nunez and he's got uh, Gakpo, hasn't he? But they, they've not clicked. So the problem, the, the focus, the spotlight has been on the midfield, which has always been inadequate. Injury problems, caters, not reliable. Um uh, you know, the, the, uh, it's just not not happened for them. So, uh, yeah, I, I, Liverpool, I think, have just got to dismiss this season and think, well, let's come back next season. Mm-hmm. OK, uh, I just want to ask you, though, Sir Alex Ferguson during his Manchester United tenure, it was, I mean, it must be very, very hard when you've got that relationship with players. It's hard to keep it completely professional. There's always going to be there is always going to be a personal relationship as well. Did, was Sir Alex Ferguson ever guilty of taking players too far? He seemed to be quite ruthless. He seemed to have that ability to continually have that succession plan 
to be able to sort of always be one step ahead. Player starts to get a little bit slow. We make the change. We move on. We're a business. We're a football club. Yeah, and I think history uh, paints Sir Alex in a very favourable light in terms of uh, his legacy and, and his ability, really, to to, to uh, turn over teams. I think Manchester City going through the same process. OK, we've just uh, lost Andy. What we'll do is we'll take a break here on SENZ and we'll come back and continue our football discussion. It is, what is the time? It's 13 minutes after eight, listening to SENZ. OK, apologies. We just had a wee technical issue. We uh, just lost uh, Andy Buckley, the velvet voice of Manchester City, but we've got him back. Andy, I was just saying prior to you dropping out, just trying to draw some comparisons, say, between Jurgen Klopp and maybe Sir Alex Ferguson. Alex Ferguson just seemed to have that ability to be able to uh, get a little bit of a read on when players were sort of approaching their use-by date and bring that next wave of talent in and constantly having that smooth transition. Yeah, ruthless at times, Fergie, but uh, fair play to him. Uh, you know, history will show that um, he, he succeeded because he had a trophy-laden career at Manchester United. And Jurgen Klopp has got to be ruthless. He, he brought in uh, Nunes uh, and Gakpo up front and hoped to take the pressure off the midfield, but it didn't work. The, the problems run deep in Liverpool's midfield at the moment with various players who are either perhaps over the hill or injury-prone. Uh, and uh, the chemistry is not right, so he's got to change it. Fergie had a great reputation. I remember famously he sold Mark Hughes, Paul Ince and Andre Kinchelskis one summer, and you're thinking, what's he doing? The three top players, but he decided that they weren't for him, and he replaced them, and he went on to have even more success and eventually won the uh, the Champions League. I think the player that Fergie did indulge was Eric Cantona because he didn't quite fit the template. He was very much a maverick, uh, and, and the people said that Cantona... Uh, didn't suit United's style in, in, in Europe. Um, and it was only after he went that United ended up winning the Champions League. But uh, he indulged him, I suppose, Alex Ferguson, really, Cantona. He, 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 took, uh, he was allowed to, to get away with things that other players wouldn't get away with. Um, and, uh, you know, Fergie, a, a great uh, motivator, a great leader, uh, a, a man that a lot of other managers aspire to and very few uh, managed to, to equal. Yeah, I just want to ask you that on Eric Cantona. What, you brought it up, but was Eric Cantona, to me, he almost was the catalyst for the floodgates opening, for the English clubs really looking at talent abroad, really starting to big spend big, big money, almost at the expense of local talent. And once Eric Cantona started establishing himself, we saw the likes of the Chelsea's and these other big clubs really, and Arsenal starting to go, right, hey, we need to pick up the French top of French players. We need to pick up top Spanish players. And it's almost like since then, it's, it's you know, let, let's be honest, in most of the big clubs, you've, you're lucky to have two or three English-born players. Yeah, I know. That's a criticism, really, that the academy systems in England and the young talent in England uh, suffer because of the uh, influx of, of foreign talent. Uh, but, yeah, uh, Cantona, I suppose, was a symbol of of the, uh, the foreign invasion. But I think that the floodgates had already opened by then. I think they were opened by Ozzy Ardiles and Ricky Villa when they came to Tottenham in 1978, was it? Um, 
Mario Kempi's and Ardili 78, wasn't it? And then he was part of that great sort of Spurs yeah. sort of in the 1980s, wasn't he? I, I mean, every time you thought of Tottenham Hotspur yeah. in the early 1980s, you thought of Aussie Ardili's. And then, of course, Glenn Hoddle. Yeah. Indeed, but I'll tell you, it was a trailblazer, only because I, uh, I uh, in my professional career, I, I sort of interviewed him and covered his progress. And, that, and don't laugh at this, but the Sam Allardyce was, because what Sam Allardyce did, and we're going back 20 years now, uh, Bolton Wanderers, he put Bolton into the, into the European competitions and into the sort of top half dozen in the, the Premier League for a while, and they, they sort of really uh, were able to mix it with the very best. He went to the Africa Cup of Nations and play, signed players from Tunisia and I know we got Yuri Djorkaev who was a French player, a World Cup winner, etc. Uh, um, uh, Campo was it Ivan Campo from Real Madrid uh, and but but he also turned to the African continent and he brought in a lot of players unknown at very cheap rates to play for Bolton and and it, it really it, it was a, an innovation which other managers then followed and obviously. Now, in this world that we live in, where players uh, readily just change between continents uh, quite easily, that um, uh, you know everybody's trying to emulate what what Allardyce did, and eventually, I think he got past his sell-by date in terms of a manager. I think other managers, you think of Joe Royal at Michael Manchester City, he got past his sell-by date in a way. Uh, even Mourinho has gone past his sell-by date. You know, the talk of him going back to Chelsea for a, he'd like another crack at managing Chelsea. Which is quite absurd, really. He's just turned 60. That is no age. I should know that myself. But Mourinho's style and his coaching methods and his manual for coaching really is a bit dated in terms of, well, very dated in terms of what the English game offers. Um, so, it, you know, it, it's just changing. I've been uh, covering some matches in the Championship in the last couple of weeks for uh, the National Commercial Radio Station in England. I was at Wigan and Luton a week last Saturday. I went to Hull against Queen's Park Rangers last Saturday. I'm doing a real uh, classic on, on this Saturday. I'm at Hillsborough for Sheffield Wednesday against Plymouth. Top of the table clash. It's going to be a sellout. 30,000 will be in, in uh, South Yorkshire for that game. And there's a lot of young managers who are coming through. The reason I'm mentioning those is a lot of young managers coming through. The new breed who are all aspiring managers. All right, Colo Torre at Wigan's been sacked since I interviewed him a week last Saturday, but we've got Rob Edwards, who's the manager of Luton, who's a very aspiring young manager. Uh, at Hull on um, Saturday, I interviewed uh, Liam Rossini, the manager of Hull, whose father used to play in the English League. And the opposing manager was um, Neil Critchley, who was part of the Liverpool uh, coaching setup. And then Stephen Gerrard took him to Aston Villa as his number two. Gerrard got the push, and now Critchley has gone to Queen's Park Rangers to try and become a number one rather than a number two. So... There's a lot of managers, really, who are bubbling under, just mm. below the profile, and probably don't, you know, the names that would never get a look in in New Zealand, but because, like in England, everything's just completely dominated by this beast that is the Premier League that, that consumes us all, really, me included. But there's a lot of people playing football, watching football. You know, you think 30,000 are going to watch a League Two? It's a third-tier game on Saturday. 30,000 people will fill Hillsborough to watch that match. It just shows the depth, really, and passion that there is for English football. Mm. Let's just talk about the EFL Cup because the second legs of the semi-finals. The first one is played tomorrow morning, New Zealand time. Newcastle United taking on Southampton. They go in with a one-goal uh, one to nil aggregate. I think everyone would love to see Newcastle go through. 
probably should get the job done. On the other side of it, Manchester United, they have a 3 0 aggregate over Nottingham Forest. They're at home, so you can sort of see Manchester United a chance for some silverware. They should go through to the FL final. Yeah, the short it should be a United uh, Newcastle final at the end of uh, February, which uh, would be uh, a mouth watering prospect, really. And I would have thought, to be honest with you, for the for the Carabao Cup uh, organisers and sponsors, it's the dream final because we've got away from the Manchester City, Chelsea, Liverpool, Arsenal um, teams who've dominated it, and, and not really a good uh, advert, I don't think, for the English game. The same teams every season getting to the final, um, and and to get United, and it seems a bit odd to say United newcomers to a cup final, but they are. It's you know six years since United were. We're in the, the um, was it the Europa Cup and they won that, but uh, so so they've they've certainly uh, uh, overdue success. And as for Newcastle, well, you know I wasn't even born the last time Newcastle won a trophy, so uh, we, we're talking a, an awful long time ago. And um, the, the, the Newcastle fans are absolutely bananas; they are balmy as anything. Uh, you probably saw the images of them at Southampton, and it's a bit sort of common sight, really. Of, in the depths of the mid-English winter, you've got Geordie fans stood there without the tops on, waving the scarves uh, in the freezing cold, uh, and they will make a party of it uh, when, if they go to Wembley and beat Southampton. I expect them to see off Southampton. I think Southampton have got problems of their own at the bottom end of the table. Um, still in the FA Cup as well, Southampton, aren't they? So uh, they've got that other fish to fry. But uh, and, and I just don't think they've got the quality and the power. I think, to be honest with you, uh, that game, the next game coming up, uh, is going to be uh, to see uh, Newcastle rocking, really, with a full house and uh, the, the passionate Geordies is going to be quite an occasion and will be the final. The final will be brilliant if it's United and Newcastle. Just finally, because you're a Manchester City man, I need to talk about Manchester City. Got through the FA Cup fourth round, a third round, in fact, a fourth round, in fact, um, beating Arsenal 3-2 in an absolute cracker. You've drawn Bristol City in the fifth round. Any concerns there? Um, a tricky one, uh, but should do it. Uh, interesting the way that the draw's panning out because City have seen off Chelsea and Arsenal um, and... Uh, you know, one or two of Liverpool are out as well. So uh, teams like United, Manchester United, um, Manchester City, Tottenham, all fancy the chances. As will one or two of the others as well, the likes of Brighton, you know. And then going back to my point, really, about having uh, new teams there in the cup, you know, it'd be nice to see somebody like Brighton and uh, doing well and, and getting to a cup final. I remember covering the game against City in the semi-final when they were quite unlucky a few years ago. But it's fantastic that Brighton are doing so well, mixing it with the best. Fulham well, as well, another team. You know, Brighton-Fulham final, I would not have a problem with that. Well, I tell you, um, yeah, Liverpool fans would be hoping for a, a Bristol City-Brighton final. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm, uh, I, I just don't see the Bristol City seeing off uh, Manchester City, to be honest with you, but uh, I'll take your point. Uh, hey, I mean, Wrexham's the other story hey, as well. Yeah, go on, go on. Yep. But, Wrexham is the other story, of course, with the two Hollywood owners. Um, you know, they're playing Sheffield United uh, in the replay, and there was a big song and dance about uh, the fact that, uh, you know, a big bit of a controversy, really, because Wrexham have ploughed all this money in. Uh, I think they made £10 million last season from just filming these Hollywood guys 
Ryan Reynolds and Rob McKelney in in, uh, in and about Wrexham when they're coming over. He flew over from New York to watch them play Sheffield United in the, in the Cup on Sunday, and it was featured live on on national television. Uh, and but but Wrexham have, 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 have spending big on wages. They're going to go up into the football league from the national league, which is the fifth tier. Uh, and some people say, well, is it right? It's money talking again because they're plowing the money in. And then other people are saying, well, hang on a minute. This is doing wonders for uh, the town of Wrexham. It's putting Wrexham on the map in North Wales as a smallish town. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's bringing spotlight and it's bringing... I mean, what, that's what football clubs do, I suppose, don't they? They do shine a light on communities, not just football clubs, but on communities. Yeah, and look, it is all about money and there's no point trying to pretend it's not. Forget all the history, forget all the True. glory days. It's ultimately about money and if you... If you're slow on the uptake, well, you're going to continue to wallow in the mire or you can be like Wrexham and be innovative and look for some different owners. And I just wonder whether we're going to see more Hollywood celebrities thinking, well, I've got a luxury boat, he's got a luxury boat, I've got a Lamborghini, he's got a Lamborghini. Hey, maybe I need a third, fourth or fifth tier English football club. Why don't we go and grab one? Yeah. Yeah, true. Yeah. Andy Buckley, as always, thank you for taking your precious time and joining us here in New Zealand. Greatly appreciate it. Pleasure. Good to speak to you. Cheers, Mark. You are listening to SENZ on a wet, windy night here in Auckland as we broadcast from home via a mobile phone, via technology, being panelled out by Nick in Melbourne, Australia, Ben Francis, about 20 kilometres north of me here in Auckland, all under all under house arrest due to the possibility of flooding. Hopefully, hopefully we're coming across okay. Do appreciate all the work that's been put in behind the scenes to bring you some live sport or some discussion here on this. What is it? It's a Tuesday night, isn't it? The 31st of January. We will take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk surf life-saving. We're going to catch up. Uh, we're going to catch up and just talk about their role, their involvement in the floods, also the sports side of it, uh, the club side of it, some water safety. So Zach Franich next on the program. You're listening to SENZ on another wet, miserable night here in Auckland. Hopefully everybody has battened down the hatches. Everybody's okay. Uh, weather seems to be probably forecast to be a little bit heavier, a little bit worse north of Oury, north of Auckland. Um, but boy, tough time of year. So much for our summer. Uh, look, a lot of our services well and truly extended, and that includes also surf lifesaving. Um, volunteers, number of clubs around the Auckland region, what they call the Northern region. And I'd imagine that a lot of them have just given up their time, weren't prepared maybe for these floods and have done, you know, done God's work. So I do want to chat that now, but also want to talk about the sports side of it and general water safety. So from Northern Lifeguard Services, Zach Franich joins us. Zach, good evening. Welcome. Evening, Mark. Hope you're well. Yeah, good. Hey, look, just in regards to the surf clubs and their contribution to the floods, getting out, helping people, is there anything formalised in situations like this or does this just come down to the club and the community themselves? No, there is a, <clears throat> there is a formal response team. Um, currently, uh, our lifeguards and our call-out squads are part of the emergency management team, um, which is linked to civil defence. So, in essence, if a, if a call is made to 111, um, that'll go to the emergency response team and uh, respective call-out squads will be tasked to, to help and do their bit in the rescue. Uh, over the last few days, we've had uh, call-out squads from Marangi Bay, Motawai and Bethel's Beach Surf Life Saving Clubs uh, all, all doing their bit. 
Uh, and what that looks like is, is going to um, going house to house um, with their IRVs, um, ferrying people to safety or getting experts in and out of where they need to be. So, um, yeah, they're, they're the best equipped to, to handle the flood, uh, to, to handle flood responses, um, better equipped than other emergency services. So, uh, no, very, very, very much formalised response from surplus saving these situations. Yeah, uh, Mirawai Lifeguard, Surf and Rescue Squad lead, Glenn Calthorpe, he just looks actually two houses down from me. And I was just talking to him and it was well documented in the New Zealand Herald that they were involved in a rescue in Cumia involving a three-year-old boy who was still fast asleep on a couch that was actually floating. Um, yeah, just remarkable. So how highly trained are they? And have you had, how many situations in the past have been similar to what we've had here in Auckland in the last five days? Uh, well, if you actually catch them on not too, uh, in the not too distant past, there was an incident uh, last year where you will remember there was flooding uh, out in West Auckland in the Kumiu River Head Helensville area and, and again the Murawai and Manangi Bay um, Surf Life Saving Call-Out Squads were again tasked to, uh, tasked to helping people who couldn't get out of their properties due to, due to floodwaters. Um, I can't, oh, outside of these two incidences, I can't quite remember... Uh, any other flooding events in recent history history that have been to the magnitude we've seen over the last couple of years. So, um, yeah, quite frightening. Yeah, and it's fair to say these people are volunteers, aren't they? These people are not being remunerated for what they do. They're highly trained. They do it because they love of it. They do it because they want to put something back into the community. Yeah, that's correct. And they are our best and our most highly trained volunteers. Uh, a lot of them have a number of years uh, up to you know decades of experience um, not only operating but also in first aid and just yeah and, and just hazardous search and rescue safety um, procedures and precautions. So again, they are highly skilled, highly trained, um, and highly motivated people. Uh, they're yeah, they're a special type of person who uh, are more than happy to um, you know heed the call should their community need the help. Mm. Now. Um, Zach, it's also been well documented that there have been a number of drownings around the country, whether it be in rivers, um, whether it be at beaches over the summer. What is still, I guess, the biggest frustration for the northern region, for the different regional surf life-saving organisations that, that, that I guess are frustrating, that the, perhaps the message is not getting through? Well, I think one thing which we're doing really well is none of those drownings have occurred on patrol beaches during the flag. So, our main, you know, our main priority is to make sure those beaches are, are safe, and that's where our resources are. Unfortunately, um, all of the drownings that have happened so far this summer have happened outside of patrolled areas, um, areas that um, you know are sparsely populated, and and ultimately it just comes down to individuals underestimating. Um, or sorry, overestimating their ability and underestimating the power of the sea and the waterways. Um, you know, unfortunately, you know the sea the sea holds its own score and it doesn't discriminate. So it doesn't matter, um, you know, how old, how how young you are. Um, if you're not if you're not uh, skilled or trained or have knowledge of the waterways, you can find yourself in trouble quite quickly. Mm. One thing you often hear particularly living out on the beach like Mirawai where I live, I mean, we're all pretty familiar with what a rip looks like, but a lot of people aren't. They hear the term and they go, but what's a rip? How do we identify it? Is there, is there an image? What's the best way of showing people what a rip looks like at a beach? 
Well, essentially, uh, <laughs> rips are really, uh, they're really unassuming. Quite often people go there to swim because uh, if you go to a really rough beach, um, they can present as really calm patches and surf. Um, that's what you want to avoid. So essentially, if you're at a, if you're at a beach and you see waves breaking, um, that's water pushing in. If you do see those calm patches, that's where water is rushing out back to sea again. Um, water always needs to find its way back out again. And, um, and again, people will look for a calm patch, think that's a safe spot for them to swim. Uh, but unfortunately, that's, that's the worst place for them to, um, for them to get into the water. Mm, okay, let's talk about Kaboy. I tell you what, surf life saving it's so multifaceted, isn't it? I mean, it's about patrolling beaches, it's about helping people. We just talked about the floods, but there's also the sports side of it, which is a big driver for a lot of young people to get involved in the service. And you have to be a lifeguard before you can compete. Um, and now this weekend in Orewa, fingers crossed, it is going to go ahead. We've got the northern regions for the youngsters. We do, we do. We have we have close to 500 of our junior members descending upon Orewa Beach. Uh, in competitions from under 10s, under 12s, and under 14 uh, and under 40 members, um, and this is, a, I mean, this is arguably our most important event on the calendar within Auckland. Um, this is an experience. This is an opportunity for us to uh, provide uh, an engagement point for, you know, for our future lifeguards. And and we know that uh, through these events, um, the more the more members we get to these events, the more lifeguards we get out the, the other end of it. Um, so again, hugely important weekend. The weather is actually looking good. Um, currently, the water quality is a little little sketchy, um, but come Thursday, Friday, that should all clear up, and we should be set for a cracker for a cracker weekend at Whatever Beach across Saturday and Sunday. You must be delighted. Five hundred youngsters—that that, that's a lot of kids, considering how many sports were available to kids over the summertime. You, you must be pretty happy with those types of numbers. And I see that. I think it was. I think it was Gisborne and what. The eastern region, they had around seven or eight hundred to their championships. That's correct. Yes, yeah, so last weekend there was the eastern regional championships, which were held at Mount Monganui, uh, which ultimately got moved to Pilot Bay due to adverse conditions. But you know that, that event saw seven hundred uh, lifeguards. So this was a senior competition, so there were seven hundred lifeguards uh, descended upon Tauranga last weekend, and and again some some excellent competition. And you know we spoke before about search and rescue, search and rescue and call out squads. A lot of those members. Um, who populate those squads actually are people who participate in surf sports as well. So um, it, it really is the only only sport where you have um, again the competitive element, but also that volunteerism, um, which is inherently built into it. So um, so yeah, again a really important part of our movement. Keep mm-hmm. those guards fit and fast. Keep the reactions quick. And um, and it, as as we all know, the fitter and more healthier you are, the better decisions you make under pressure. Yeah, and look, people listening to this too, I don't want to turn anybody off because you don't have to be an elite athlete either, though, to be a lifeguard, do you? I mean, the service caters for people who might not necessarily be great athletes but might have a really good, uh, you know, intellectually might be quite onto it. So there are various levels and various roles within surf lifesaving and becoming a lifeguard. So it really is available to anyone that does want to put their hand up. Absolutely, and I mean, yeah, just like any organisation, we do have we do have room for anyone and everyone. Uh, and surf life saving is no different. Um, there are multiple pathways within the sport, within um, again within the sports space, but also also within the lifeguarding and patrolling space. Um, plenty of leadership courses. I mean, uh, yeah, there doesn't seem to be. I, I mean, all organisations are struggling to to keep members between the twenty to thirty year old age group. Um, so uh, yeah, like I said, there's a place for everyone, um, and I would agree we're doing we're doing our bit, and arguably doing it better than some other some other codes and some other services. Um, but that's just 
part of what's our part of what makes the organisation so great. Now, the Northern Regional Championships for our trained lifeguards happen on the 18th and 19th in Wangamata. The big question is, is Zach Franich lining up? Is the big fella going to be on the start line? Is he going to be on his ski? Is he fit? <laughs> I think the bigger question is, can we get there? Uh, I've just seen that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, you can get there. It's going to take about 500 kilometres to get there, but you can get there. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I'm, yeah you, you might see me don the cap and join and join uh, join in a few relays and do my bit for for the mighty Audrey Lister Fly Saving Club. Um, but I mean, look, we're really excited to be delivering that event. We're expecting um, north of 600 competitors from across the country, um, and should line up to be a cracking event. Um, it's yeah, Fongmata is a, a great location and. We were there earlier in the year with the Whangamata Classic, um, which saw 30, over 30 clubs competing, um, both from New Zealand and Australia. Um, great to have some Australian competitors lining up now that the borders are open. And we're anticipating, uh, yeah, we're anticipating a similar spectacle uh, come, the end of, come the end of this month. Zach Franich, as always, um, thank you for your time on the program. And oh, just before we let you go, just the website, if people want to get more information or just want somewhere to take out some of the guesswork, www.lifesaving.org.nz That's simple, lifesaving.org.nz As always, Zach, uh, train well. Good luck in Wangamatari. In fact, we might see you at the Northern Regionals this weekend. Sounds good. Cheers, Mark. See you then. Thank you, Zach Franich there, joining us, talking a little bit of surf lifesaving. I, I just want to emphasise that too. If you, I know there's a lot of charities out there and I know there's a lot of people in need and you might look at surf lifesaving and go, well, look, you know, um, you weigh them up against child cancer and other organisations, I guess. Um, but I do, do. If you are going to donate money to charity, please sort of consider Surf Lifesaving as one of them. Do not underestimate the work they do on the beaches. Um, you know, a lot of people have that mentality, it's not going to happen to me. But having lived out here on the West Coast, and I back myself as being a reasonable swimmer, um, I know some guys who are very, very good swimmers and... I tell you what, doesn't matter how good you are, you can get yourself into trouble out there. And it's nice just having that reassurance that there is somebody watching your back if you're smart, if you do find yourself getting into some difficulty. And then you look at the what's happening here with the floods, you look at what the lifeguards are doing around, getting their IRBs into places, their inflatable rescue boats into places that other people can't. And, um, yeah, so look, um, never, never shy away from maybe donating money to lifeguards in your particular region or to the local Surf Life Saving Club. You're listening to SENZ. We will take a break. And when we come back, we'll catch up with Nick. Who is Nick? Nick, Nick. I actually haven't met Nick. Nick is doing the panel out of Australia. Nick is a Liverpool man. Nick already sounds incredibly intelligent simply for the fact he's a Liverpool man. The fact he's Australian, hey, we can work past that. We can work with that one. So anyway, we'll find out a little bit about Nick when we come back. Coming up to the hour of nine o'clock and Mark Watson with you broadcasting live from a mobile phone through technology, sitting on my bed at home. I was overlooking the ocean, but it has gone dark here. We've got producer Ben. He's just slightly north of Auckland. He's putting a lot of the stuff up on social media, sending different phone numbers and stuff through to Nick. Now, Nick's paddling out of Australia. It's just amazing technology. Anyway, we haven't spoken to Nick, so Nick's going to come on the program now. Nick, good evening. How are you? I, I am very well. Hopefully, uh, you know, doing doing okay. I'm just hoping everybody over there is doing all right as well and staying out of the weather and staying safe. 
Yeah. Hey, um, what's quite pleasing to know, Nick, is you're a Liverpool man, mate. You're I, a Liverpool man, so clearly, clearly very intelligent. So I'm going to ask you, how did you become a Liverpool fan? Uh, life, lifelong Liverpool man, obviously passed down from generation to generation. My father was a Liverpool man. It just, it just made sense. Yeah. Hey, what did you make about, you, you listened to the interview with Andy Buckley and Wrexham. It's interesting, isn't it? What, what's your take on Wrexham? I, I, personally, I'm a big fan of it. I mean, we know, and, and you guys are 100% right, money, money is a big thing in football, whether we want it to be a big influence or not. But then I think the way to look at it for a team like Wrexham, who are, who are obviously fifth division, they're, they're never going to get the money to get themselves out of the mire, to go up the leagues, to be able to compete without that sort of buy-in. And what's really funny when we talk about it is if it's a $10 million investment from Ryan Reynolds and, and co, that pales in comparison to, you know, player wages or even transfer wages from anybody in the Prem or any of the sort of big five leagues. So if that helps them get some recognition and sort of move up the chat, you know, the table. So we've got some new teams and new faces competing. I, I'm a fan of that. I, I really am. Um, I listened to the call of Wrexham on the weekend and it was great. It, you could hear it. It was just a fantastic game. Yeah, and that's the thing though, isn't it? I mean, it's... it's uh, a lot of these, a lot, a lot of clubs, famous clubs, and we might do a little bit more research on this in the next hour that actually no longer exist because mm. simply there was not the money, there's not the, there was just not the financial stability to do it. So if you're going to get a couple of Hollywood stars who are going to come and underwrite your club and just bring a little bit of security, why not? As you say, I mean, but how many people are going to be wearing Wrexham shirts? How in vogue now is it to have Wrexham shirt? I guarantee it'll become a trend, won't it? It'll become a fashion statement. It, it will indeed. I think, I think uh, we are Wrexham is definitely. A, a trending topic, that's for sure. Absolutely. Um, now, so what do you take on Liverpool? Uh, uh, I mean, we write the season off, don't we? We do. We do indeed. I think we write the season off. But remember, keep in mind, we did go two games away from a quad last season. We played 64 games, which was more than any other team. I think, you know, a, a fall-off was, was always on the card. We just don't have the depth to keep up. And that's what you need in the big leagues. Yeah, and be careful what you wish for. If you think you can win four, realise there will be a hangover, there will be a level of fatigue that comes with it. And I think target one, target two, and that's probably more realistic. Anyway, we are coming up to nine o'clock. We'll have Dale Budge on the programme and Graham Patterson who phoned through from Christchurch. Graham, we haven't forgotten about you. We want you to phone us back too. Yes, welcome back into the program on this wet Tuesday. Hopefully everyone in the Northland, Bay of Plenty, Auckland region are doing okay. More rain expected overnight in patches. Uh, not a good time, not a great summer. Uh, hopefully, hopefully um, we're putting a bit of a smile on your face and bringing you some radio that is, um, well, is, is slightly interesting. Maybe I'm downplaying a little bit. I've got to say, thoroughly enjoyed having a chat with Rod Dixon after 7 o'clock. If you missed that interview, if we can, if we can, and we're trying to, might try and replay that around about 10.30. We were just talking about Cook's Gardens in Whanganui being honoured by World Athletics, um, pretty much given sort of the equivalent of World Heritage status, I guess, and also posthumously honouring Peter Snell with legend status. And there were a couple of plaques that were unveiled um, and Rod Dixon giving the honour of doing that and just his memories of Cook's Gardens and just talking about maybe some of the other iconic running venues around this country which were very much 
the centre of world attention in the 1960s and 1970s. I don't say that lightly, but particularly the Auckland Domain, One Tree Hill, and the famous Arthur Lydiard Waiatarua run up in the Waitakere Ranges. And so um, you might have some iconic landmarks in your region, in your part of the country that have special significance to a particular sport, not just within this country, but also overseas. And certainly one that comes to mind, another one that comes to mind here in Auckland is Western Springs, the home of Speedway. Uh, remarkable when you go back to the era of the great Ivan Major and Barry Briggs and those wonderful world champions that we had in the 1950s, 1960s and 1970s. Now, Graham Patterson, I know out of Christchurch, good Crusaders man, was trying to phone the programme. Uh, Graham, if you do want to phone through and anyone else wants to phone through, Nick can take your calls out of Melbourne. Just phone the 0800 150 number, 0800 150 I'm not sure that we're getting texts, but you can try, of course, on 8833. But Ben Francis, who is producing, is probably sitting in his lounge, hopefully hopefully above water, about 20 kilometres north of me. Ben, are you with us? Are you still with us? You haven't got a life jacket on yet. No, I haven't got the life jacket, mate, but we're still keeping an eye out and just see what this weather does. I see a few trees uh, blocking a few of the roads not far from me now, so it's very, very slowly closing in. How were you on Friday, Ben, when all hell broke loose and most of Auckland found itself underwater. Boy, some unbelievable scenes, seeing some of the water on the motorways and just areas of Auckland you would just never expect to get flooded. Yeah, well, I was up north, so my partner and I, we had planned to go for a trip up uh, to Northland and that was where lots of the weather was expected to hit. But we went anyway and there was actually nothing up there and we actually felt a bit guilty because we were sitting there having quite a nice time watching you know, a beautiful sunset while everyone in Auckland was struggling and the end of my street where I live uh, completely flooded and blocked off. You know, it was like a big river going across the road. Uh, the house was very close to flooding, but luckily the neighbours saved it. And even just seeing at uh, where SCNZ is based as well and seeing the car park and I was breathing, breathing a huge sigh of relief because if I hadn't gone away, that I would have been trapped at work and my car would have been written off. So... It was quite scary watching it, but knowing there's nothing I could really do about it was pretty hard as well. Yeah, no, I worked on the Saturday at the SENZ studios and the foyers inside the building. It's a really nice building too and a nice part of Auckland and they were, um, yeah, not, not good at all. You could basically still go fishing in the foyer era, uh, foyer area. Uh, but you, you're a darts man, so you're a little bit lucky. At least you can sort of practice your sport indoors, Ben. See, I, I love my swimming, so a tree falls down, Parnell baths can't go and swim there. You know, apparently now you're not allowed to go the other way into the pool and there's no room in society anymore for a little bit of the Shelby Wright attitude and, you know, and a bit of common sense. <clears throat> they just seem to shut everything down. And then uh, Henderson Pool, where the Commonwealth Games was staged in 1990, that pool was flooded, so that's been closed down. So sort of having to find my way. I had to go and swim at the National Aquatic Centre today, which is about a 40-minute drive from here. But I'd imagine, I'd imagine, Ben, you've had plenty of time to throw a few darts. I actually haven't, surprisingly. I've been, been a pretty busy man, and I've just been away. I did actually have my darts with me, just in case I happened to stumble across somewhere that had a dartboard, but I actually had my first throw of a set of darts in about a week, uh, just earlier today. So it's been quite a while, and you, know, you don't do something for that kind of period, and you notice you're a bit rusty, and it's going to take a bit to work your way back up to where you were. Mm. 
It's saying, and, I, and you've got to be, you know, and I only sort of say tongue in cheek a little bit, but it's funny perspective, isn't it? How, you know, I'm sitting out here and the beach mirror is perfect for surfing. We're on the East Coast, you know, water pollution, um, tides are high, it's creating all sorts of havoc. Um, I can't go swimming, you can play darts. And yeah, you know, and I, I sort of joked once, and there's a saying out there that when the Titanic was sinking, the lobsters in the kitchen galley thought it was a miracle because life's all about perspective and it's a strange way sometimes of looking at things though isn't it um by the way by the way crayfish can live at minus one degree water temperature which was the temperature when the titanic sank wow there you go fascinating great information there oh fascinating but you imagine you're in the kitchen galley of the Titanic. You're thinking, right, when are they going to throw me in the boiling water? And then the next minute, the thing hits an iceberg and you're thinking, there is a God, there is a miracle. Yeah, here you go. Uh, hopefully That's we just... have a bit of a miracle tonight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just trying to bring a bit of humour to um, a very difficult and very tough situation. All right, Ben. Now I have put the call out. I have put the call out for Graham Patterson, um, and I'm going to see if Nick can whisper in my ear whether Graham's there or not out of Melbourne. I don't think he is at the moment. Oh, Graham's there. Graham's there. Graham is there. So anyway, we're going to have a chat to Graham because one of the things that I said earlier is that I read an article today in the UK, and it was sort of talking about the death of rugby as we know it and the game's in real trouble. There are scandals in and around the hosting of the World Cup in France. There are billion-dollar lawsuits with concussion. Um, we're bringing in these ridiculous tackling laws now where you can really only go waist high and you sort of feel the entire Rugby World Cup's going to be decided on yellow cards and red cards and interpretation and um, we're not going to factor in uh, what what is it, intuition or reaction times. And then we've got the game in this country, and you would have heard me a thousand times from pretty much every show I go on. I talk about the demise of club rugby. I talk about the demise of the MPC, and now it's happening with super rugby. Crowds are down. Television interest is down. We no longer play the South African sides. We play the Australian teams. Almost out, of, almost out of appeasement, we've got a Pacific Island team now and a Fiji team, and it's a great initiative. But you can't really see those teams, certainly in the next decade, getting themselves up to championship winning form. After all, let's be honest, the top Pacific Island players, well, they're basically pillaged by all the New Zealand teams, all the Australian teams, and there's a little bit of the leftovers that make up that team. And then Australian rugby, yep, when you get a Wallabies team of 15 players on the field, they're going to go okay. But when you try and find five super rugby teams, we're pretty much going to do a demolition on them all the time. So that competition's not what it once was. But the biggest issue that's killing rugby is this rest and rotation, the fact that the all, rugby is so top-heavy. It's all about the All Blacks now. And so they've got this ridiculous policy for Super Rugby, where no All Black can play any more than five consecutive games of Super Rugby before they need to have a rest because they're tired or they will be fatigued later in the year. And I'm just trying to work out where this comes from. Which moron has come up with this idea? 
because people want to pay money to see the best players. That's why the English Premier League is successful. That's why the NBA is successful. Well, that's why the NFL is successful. But oh no, not New Zealand rugby. We're more than happy to run out a team of second stringers. We want to protect the All Blacks. And they've been convinced they're going to get tired themselves. You know, people once told us that you couldn't run a four-minute mile and everyone believed it. And someone runs a four-minute mile and everybody goes under the four-minute mile. They once said women couldn't run marathons because their uterus would fall out. And then women started running marathons and that wasn't the case. And women can now do Ironmans. My point is, if you keep telling somebody they can't, they start to believe it. Or if you continue to raise the bar, people push towards the bar. I mean, if Edmund Hillary can conquer Mount Everest in 1953, when so many others failed, surely our rugby players can play 12 consecutive games of Super Rugby a week apart. Throw in the fact that there is normally a bye, and throw in the fact that injuries often going to mean that they are going to get a break anyway. So when are New Zealand rugby actually going to realise that the game is in trouble and the biggest part of the game being in trouble is the fact that they are just continually to erode everything below all black level. Harden up. Stop bringing out the violins. Stop dumbing the damn game down. And actually cater for the fan. Bring back some tribalism. Stop schoolboy rugby from being the stepping stone. And stop creating a generation of little princesses. Graham, good evening. <laughs> well, that was a, a good speech and a long one, Mark. <laughs> Finally came to an end, but I hope, you, I hope you're doing well. You know, I hope you, you know, well, I know you are because you're on the West Coast and you're, you're not benefiting from other people's misery, but you're, you're certainly on the better side of the, uh, the Auckland area. Yeah, and no, I've been thinking about you oh, guys, we, so... Um, yeah, well, we are to a degree. Yeah. Once we go 10k inland, then Cumi on West Auckland gets pretty flooded pretty heavily. But look, yeah, I'm, yeah, pleased yeah. To say that. I'm pleased you say that, Graham, because there can be a lot of banter between Christchurch and Auckland, but it's no different. I mean, it's not, probably not on the same scale, but when the earthquake comes along, this is not a Christchurch thing, this is a New Zealand thing. Oh, no, no, and I know we're talking sport, but, but uh, yeah, I do want to make that clear. You know, I'm being utterly sincere. You know, a lot of relatives of mine lived on the shore, North Shore and that. They moved from Christchurch. Um, sadly, they passed away, a couple of my auntie and uncle. But, yeah, I know a lot of that part, part of, you know, and as someone else said on, you know, a station the other day, you know, I think a place, you know, built on volcanic... Um, Hills and that, you know, and, and you know, you, you, it's hard to imagine flooding in Auckland. You know, I just know how mm, steep, and, you know, but the area just been absolutely thrown around like it was in a washing machine. You know, when you look at it on TV, and uh, yeah, yeah no, and as the same with like when you guys, you know, it was the same with the earthquakes here. You know, and that that yeah, that type of thing does uh, you know doesn't evaporate, but you know there are bigger things in life than than, than sport. You know. And, yeah, no, so I think, I just hope the rain stops, you know, I think that's the, that's the big thing. And then, you know, it will eventually, and then, you know, you can start getting back to, north, well, some form of normality. But, mm. yeah, no, I have been thinking about yeah, but I'm glad you, you're doing all right. But, yeah, on the uh, rugby issue, um, yeah, well, I agree with you. I mean, and, and with these squads anyway, you know, players, you know, the thing I always say is that they, they actually do rest and rotate players even the better teams have always done it anyway. But now with this all-black 
it's happened now for what well, since 2007, since the disastrous, you know, what was it, the first eight rounds they took the All Blacks out of. Um, you know, I remember in 2007, and that was a complete disaster. You know, it was the worst All Black World Cup campaign of you know, of any of them, you know, I mean, there's been other bad ones where, where people have, you know, the whole country's been up in arms over selections, but that really did backfire, and, you know, even they admitted that they got it wrong, but, you know, um, you know, but so it continues, yeah, and it's, it's, the World Cup year rolls around, and, you know, um, you know, it's like the sun rises, and, or, you know, it's, a, it's a Monday follows Sunday, you know, it's sort of, you know it's going to happen, but it doesn't make it right. And, and, I, and I don't think it's driven, you know, the players, it's not, but it's very much a, dict, you know, a dictatorial thing from, from the all-black management, you know. I'm just trying to think of another league in the world where this happens. It doesn't happen in the NBA, it doesn't happen in the NFL, it doesn't happen in the English Premier League. Their best players are expected to play every week. Their fans expect them to play every week. There's actually some meaning in actually winning. It's not looking beyond the team itself. Now, um, you know, and show me the evidence that this worked last year. Well, it clearly didn't. Show me the evidence that worked no. the year before under Ian Foster. It clearly didn't. Show me the evidence in 2019. It worked. It clearly didn't. So why are we continuing with this? But what, what frustrates me, Graham, is these people running the game simply just seem to be so far removed from the general public and the way we perceive the game and what we're seeing. Now, you tell me, is club rugby healthy? Well, no, not generally, no. No, okay. no, it's not. Is, is no, no, if you're making a broad the... statement around New Zealand, no, it slipped. You know, I mean, Christchurch Club yeah. Rugby. I'm just talking because I understand it, Club Rugby. I said, yeah. it, it is much. It is. It has gone up a bit. Uh, you know, the standard has risen in the last few years, but compared with what it was, no, yeah. because you know, um, players are taken out. What? They can't play club finals because they've got a pre-season game what? for Canterbury coming what? up. Say against. Yeah. Tasman well, in ten days' time, and so they can't play a club final. So yeah. that that diminishes the final immediately. But, you know, yeah, um, but we've got we've got we've got Graham. We've got huge dropout rates of kids even wanting to play senior club oh, rugby. Yeah, we've got teams constant. We've got teams constantly amalgamating. Then you go back to really what should be the English Premier League, the best rugby comp in the world, the MPC. I mean, let's be honest. There's no ticker tape parades these days. If you win the damn thing, it's no longer appointment viewing. It's not the default setting on a Friday or a Saturday night. You watch it if you've got nothing else to do, pretty much, and you switch off. So that's gone. And then we talked about the Super Rugby. I mean, the crowds just seem to get smaller and smaller every year. The people I talk to, Graham, just don't seem that interested anymore. People who would have been interested 20 years ago. So how come we can see it, and yet these people that are running this institution, that are running this organisation, can't? It, uh, uh, when are they going to address the issue? And what are the unions doing? I mean, they're the ones that basically the board members generally come from within the unions. At the end of the day, New Zealand rugby are custodians of our game. But oh, Oh, no, it's all about the World Cup. It's all about what happens in every four years. I was saying, Graham, I saw about three to 400 people out surfing last night. You wouldn't have seen that 15, 20 years ago. How many people are playing golf now? How many people are mountain biking? And I'll argue, yeah, yeah, a lot yeah. of those people that are doing these sports would have been rugby people 20 or 30 years ago. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, and you know, there is that massive... Um, you know, water skiing, oh, it doesn't matter, you can go into anything. You know, we've, um, we're a water nation and that's why we're very good at canoeing and re rowing particularly and kayaking and all those things. But, yeah, but the, the diversification of sport, you know, is massive. But, um, yeah, I think the World Cup 
obsessive thing with New Zealand rugby. The four-year cycle they talk about, uh, you know, is a huge problem. You know, and it, it started almost from the, you know, the genesis of the World Cup in '87. But you know, but it it wasn't so bad then, even with the politics going on between, say, you know, who was going to be the coach. But now it's become Marab. You know, it doesn't matter who the coach is; they're going to dictate that. Um, players are going to play this amount of games and, you know, and they've got 50-odd players and some of them, you know, I heard the other day that will be into that five-game embargo, if you like, um, what, you know, might not even make the World Cup squad. So, I mean, that's just something I heard on your well, station, well, but, you know. But, but what about the players that were part of the squad that hardly played any All Black games? I mean, um, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head who was our... Well, who was our third string first five last year? Um, well, Stephen Perifetta. Yeah, I mean, what did he play? We've got about a minute here in about six months. Yeah, played about forty <laughs> minutes in six months. Yeah, I mean, it's just hopeless. It's hopeless, Graham. And yeah, they're dumbing it down. And I've had a guts for, you know, we, we've had, you know, Braden Curry and these Ironman athletes who are amongst the toughest athletes I've ever seen, 35-hour training weeks. If they don't perform, they don't get paid. You never hear them complain about how tired they are. No one's ever dumbing them down. I, I mean, honestly, this is where just sports science and over-resourcing teams just kills me. You know, like sports scientists, every time you sit down with these people, all they ever do is tell you to make sure you recover. You know, they're the same people that once told us the bloody earth was flat, mate. You know, it, it, it's it's just dumb, dumb stuff. PowerPoint presentation nonsense. And what actually frustrates me is no one in the media is prepared to ask the hard questions. Certainly Sky Television won't do it. And someone needs to sit down and actually challenge these guys and do it with a level of research so they can come back and counteract some of their arguments. Oh, exactly. Yeah, and as you say, you know, there's a level of... An I wouldn't say intimidation, but yeah, that you know, yeah, you know, I, I I just know stories of you know media that have been with the All Blacks, for instance, you know, um, in the previous coaches' time um, before Foster, you know, that access was you know that that it was sort of withdrawn because they were too critical of the All Blacks and stuff like that, and I mean. That that really is, you know, you're talking. It's sort of a Stalin's Russia type thing, you know, type such scenario. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like saying, well, you know, you're going to be sent to the gulag if if you know yeah. you can't continue. Well, you're not that you're not going to be invited to the yeah. you know the, the the cheese and cucumber and a couple of beers, well, Steinlagers, yeah. you know, at yeah. the next press gathering, you know. But I mean, that type of thing isn't good because yeah, I mean, because you're talking about criticism that's pretty generally not very hard hitting, you know, compared with what, say, would happen in Britain, no, for instance, no, with football. Yeah, oh, no, it's all, it's, it's all lightweight. I'm actually going to make an effort. I've been talking to another colleague of mine, but actually making an effort this year to actually hold some of these guys accountable. Hey, look, Graham, lovely to have you on the program, and thanks for phoning back, mate. Really appreciate it. No, 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 yeah, keep well and um, keep up the good work. Enjoy listening to you. Yep. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, look, it's um, it, it's funny having done a lot of coaching. I used to run a program up in Europe, a high-performance triathlon program, and I'd get a lot of athletes who would sit around all day on the couch. And some days we had to move our swim sessions just with availability of pools. So we'd normally try and swim in the morning. Some days we'd have to move the session till later in the day, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock at night. You get some athletes who... You know, oh, I'll be honest, we're probably naturally lazy. I'm not sure what they were doing there. Some of them, and they'd sit around all day doing nothing, watching television, and then they'd say, oh, I'm really tired. I oh, I don't think I should swim. And part of the reason they're tired is because they've actually done nothing. And I'd always say to them, never make 
never, ever form an opinion on how you feel until you start the session. And I know from my own experiences, I'd have to do a track workout, I'd swim, think to yourself, oh, boy, this is going to be tough. And you get through the first one, and then by the time you're into the second and third, and you might be doing 10 by one kilometre on the track, you actually get into it. And if you'd actually just, if you'd based it on someone telling you you were tired or on your initial feeling that you were tired, you would never have done the session. And this is what's going on. Every athlete is different. Some athletes are a little bit more injury prone than others. But I'll go back to 2011. The two best players at that Rugby World Cup for New Zealand were Jerome Kano and Kevin Mialami. Have a look at how many games they played that year. They played a lot. But New Zealand rugby need to start realising that fan engagement is disappearing. You know, I, I last year looked at a potential job with the Blues and rugby, and I didn't really get far because I knew I wouldn't because I get pigeonholed as being the opinion guy, and that, that's fine. I, I, I get it and, and stuff, but, oh, you know, we want to do all of this engagement in the community, and we want to reach all these different groups, and we want to tell all these amazing stories. I'm like, well, the first thing you bloody will need to do is actually have your best players playing every week in a competition that actually has some bloody relevance, where there's actually some meaning and winning. And it doesn't just end up being five games of civil war where the best game is amongst your own New Zealand teams. You know, it, you've actually got to have something to work with in the first place. And you've actually got to show the public that your players actually do care. And when they lose, not to smile. And when they win, celebrate. Don't turn the media down for interviews. And actually endear yourself. Oh, yeah, but that doesn't matter as long as the All Blacks win. Well, we're not winning that either, are we? So where does it leave the game? Just dumb stuff, mate. What has gone wrong in this country at times? Anyone, 0800-150-811, if you do want to phone the program. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We'll talk to Mr. Baseball, Dale Budge. We'll just get a bit of a wrap on the Tuatara season. They made the postseason, ended up losing the best of three series by two games to one against the Adelaide Giants. Their season is finished. We'll just get some final thoughts from Dale Budge next. You're listening to SENZ. Mark Watson with you through to 11 o'clock. Doing it slightly differently tonight. I've got to say it's... um. Yeah, slightly surreal, broadcasting basically off a telephone through some very good technology, sitting in my living room now at home, talking sport through to 11 o'clock. I um, want to talk a little bit of baseball. Tuatara, their season has come to an end. They ended up making the postseason, making the playoffs after finishing second in the Northeast Conference behind the Brisbane Bandits, which meant they had to travel and take on the Adelaide Giants in the best of a three-game series. They ended up losing that one narrowly by two games to one, which means that the Adelaide Giants will now play Perth Heat in the final for the Claxton Shield, Perth upsetting the best team in the league in the Brisbane Bandits on the other side of the draw. So what should we make of the Tuatara season? Well, Mr. Baseball himself, Dale Budge, joins us on the program. Evening to you, Dale. Welcome. G'day, mate. Let's... Involved from a broadcasting point of view, it was almost like the season of If Only. We were there, but we just weren't quite there. We were, we just seemed to just lack a little piece. We'll... 
which just reveals maybe fulfilling our potential. Yeah, a little bit that way, isn't it? Uh, I, I think, you know, when you look back at it, the most successful season that the Tuatara have had in their three years competing in the ABL. I mean, first year, ran last in the division, weren't overly competitive. Year two, made the playoffs, um, won their division, made the playoffs, but went out in straight sets. And, you know, this year after uh, coming back up the two-year hiatus, made the playoffs, squeaked in, admittedly, squeaked into the playoffs, but won a playoff game and, and forced a deciding um, uh, game in that semi-final series. And we're pretty close, you know, all three of those games really on a knife edge. Adelaide a little bit more clinical in, in game three and probably got it right when it counted in game one when the Tuatara possibly gave one away there that they had in the bag almost, so... Yeah, there's a sense of frustration, there's a sense of pride too. I think, you know, the team's, um, you know, if, if you've been, if you'd told the team at the beginning of the season that you'd make the semi-finals, you'd win your first playoff game in franchise history, you'd go to a, a deciding game in the semi-finals and, and dip out in narrow fashion. I, I think, you know, most teams would say that's a reasonably successful year. I, don't, I think you're right, though. It feels like the Tuatara weren't quite at their best until right at the end of the season. The last 10 days, they played some really good baseball against the Brisbane Bandits and against... Adelaide, two really, really good sides who played well against them. Um, and has been able to create that momentum maybe from Christmas time onwards and built through the season. Perhaps we could be talking about Tuatara having a crack at winning the Claxton Shield this coming weekend. But not to be. It is what it is. Adelaide with a better side when it counted and they thoroughly deserve to be in the, uh, in the final against Perth, which should be a great matchup. Yeah, it was that sort of post-Christmas run, wasn't it, where the Tuatara... And, and maybe it was that rain-affected series against Melbourne where maybe the Tuatara started, to, that was rained out, and the Tuatara just lost some momentum there, just had that week without playing baseball. Other issues in and around maybe not having access to North Harbour Stadium and um, proper training facilities. But they just struggled, didn't they, to put it all together consistently with the batting and the pitching all sort of working in unison. We had games where the batting was working, but the pitching wasn't quite there. Other games where the pitching was there, but the bats were struggling. And amongst it all, all year, the odd game where it did come together, but not consistently. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that period that you talked about, I mean, you can make excuses. and At this level, they really shouldn't be. You know, the professional players, they need to adapt, and uh, they were disappointed in their own performances. There were some mitigating circumstances there. You're right. Like, the, the weather the weather in Auckland, there was a two-week period there leading into Christmas where Tuatara did not train outdoors. They just were not able to get outdoors, and I think at that level, when you when the opposition are sort of fine-tuning the game and you're well into the season, to not be able to do that does have an impact on performance. Now, should it have had as much of an impact as it did? Probably not. Um, but it was certainly a factor. And there was there was a lot of frustration from within the organisation at that time. Um, you can't help the weather. That's no one's fault. It is just, you know, it's been a horrific summer. We're still dealing with it now. There's a lot worse things in the world than, you know, struggling to play baseball and, um, but, you know, the team, the team was frustrated at the time. Yeah, there were some other internal things that weren't going according to plan, and, and Mincy's highlighted a little bit of that. And as we go through a review, there'll be some of the things that, you know, we'll look to rectify and do better in, in the future and, um, you know, make sure that, that there aren't repeats. But uh, the pleasing thing is they came out the other side of it and were able to string some good form together. But largely OK against Geelong. I think they sort of stepped in the right direction there against Geelong and then took a major step forward against Brisbane. Uh, the back end of the season, but um, yeah, at that point you've got to be near on perfect. And uh, there was sort of one one inning there early on where it just got away a little bit from Kawagashi after a good start in game three, and then likewise Connor Gleeson had the bases loaded. Difficult job to come in in that circumstance and, and get out. But you know he made a couple of mistakes with his pitches. 
conceded a couple of runs. Did well to get out of the jam admittedly, but 4 0, those are four pretty easy runs offered up to a good side. And it's really, really hard to score them, as, as we found, um, you know, when it was the Tuatara turn at the plate. And they got two of them, but weren't able to get any more. And that's the difference between, you know, going fishing this weekend and, and, uh, and playing in Perth. Dale, the Tuatara predominantly made up of overseas players out of Taiwan, out of Korea, large contingent of American players, throw in some Australian players. But the goal in the long term is to have more homegrown talent. And one of the real pleasing things this season amongst it all was the performances of Clayton Campbell Jr., Jason Matthews and young Tui Amosa. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that'll be one of the highlights for us. I mean, it's the reason we're all doing this is... Yeah, we care about the sport. You want to see, excuse me, baseball in New Zealand flourish and, and move forward, and um, you know try to grow that player depth. It is it is a little bit bare, and it certainly was when this team was started in, in 2018. Um, but yeah, I mean the, the emergence of Jason Matthews at that stage when the team was put together, he was someone that had been identified as a potential future player, and you know, it was pretty special seeing him do what he did this year. Yeah. Um, Just so, that's right, Dale. You, you take three deep breaths, mate. Have a week off. We're um, we, we we just do ad hoc radio, mate. It's it's never perfect with me, but my good man. Um, so in terms of looking forward to the next season, certainly some challenges this year, and I'd imagine some more challenges coming. Can you can you see this as is this sustainable in the long term? Do you, do, uh, are we going to continue to see the Tuatara? I certainly hope so. I mean, I haven't put in what I've put in the last three or four years to to, to, to give up on it. I'm sure the investors, uh, both New Zealand and the other investors that uh, put money into this franchise, they don't want to see the long-term growth. And I think we can all see the the potential there at the moment. Yeah, it's not. I mean, it depends how you determine sustainable. It's not making money, that's for sure. Um, it's it's probably not breaking even, and has a little bit of work to do to get to that point. I think. I think we've been able to, you know, if COVID hadn't come along and pushed the pricing out, I mean, the flights are insanely expensive as anyone that's tried to travel over the last 12 months knows. Um, that's sort of blowing the budgets out a wee bit. And, you know, we have to rethink things, and that'll be a discussion with the ABL about is there a smarter way to limit the amount of travel that, that teams have to do, both us going backwards and forwards across the Tasman and other teams having to, you know, make the, the trip across here. Is there a smarter way to do things, a block in Auckland rather than, um, backwards and forwards, home and away. I don't know, is, is it possible to have a conference in New Zealand and then crossover and finals? All things that need to be discussed. Um, you know, I think, I'd be very surprised if the Tuatara just wound up and walked away. I, I don't think that'll be the case. Um, there'll be a lot of work going to try and tweak the model to make it more sustainable, to make it more financially viable. There are some pretty obvious things. There's a couple of obvious answers that I think we internally know and I probably can't get into those publicly just yet, but things that we could look at doing to uh, try and, and, and help the, the bottom line. Um, and if, if we're able to do that, then you know, you're, you're sort of 95% there already. So it's a pr- pretty committed, I can say that, it's some pretty committed shareholders and, and I'm sure that they, you know, they haven't come this far to, to give up, mm. um, you know, as soon as we start thinking for promise. Yeah, no, it's just, it's, 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 yeah, it's just, I, I guess, you know, just with the COVID for the last two years, the flooding that we've had this year, it's, it's hard for 
boy, it's hard just to sort of see beyond what we're currently seeing at the moment in terms of the weather, in terms of the environment, in terms of the conditions out there. But in regards to um, Steve Mintz and Darren Bragg and the coaching staff, and they've been a core part of this team since it started uh, four years ago, is, if, are they still keen? Are they Do they still want to be involved and see this club fulfil its potential and win its first Claxton Shield? Um, I'm sure they are. I haven't spoken specifically. I've had a little bit of a chat to Mincy today. In fact, I was talking just before you rang, and yeah, he's certainly thinking ahead to next year, so that would indicate that he's currently interested in coming around again. His, his situation in the US obviously needs to be resolved, so he's currently looking for a managerial job in modern league baseball in the States. So depending on what happens there, that's a little bit of a hurdle to overcome first, but I think his desire is obviously to be here for long, always very passionate about baseball here and growing he's at least made some lifelong friends here um, I'm sure any opportunity he gets to be involved I'm, I'm sure he'll jump at it so um, yeah I mean, these are all things we've probably got to work through over the next few weeks um, yeah the team arrived back early hours this morning uh, from Australia so uh, you know they're all with the brotherhood just trying to get most of the players back to um, the various parts of the world that they're from the Kiwis home and, and settled and then yeah it'll be a case of going through some reviews work out you know the, the obvious issues, um, what does next year look like with the ABL? To be fair, then we have to let them get through the rest of their final series before that conversation takes place. Um, and then it'll be a case of yeah, work out, well, what, what does the roster look like? I mean, you talked about it before, it's pretty obvious. You know, Jason Matthews, Peyton Campbell Jr., Suya Mosa, Ethan Laird, who's a developer player, who I'm sure will be very much in the running for a full-time contract next year. Uh, you know, the pitchers, Connor Gleeson, Elliot Johnson, Ben Thompson... Cog Nagoski, if he's available, all of those guys. There's a bit of a core now of Kiwis that are not just capable of playing at the ABL level, but capable of succeeding at the ABL level. And if that, you know, the, the key to this franchise is to keep that group together as much as possible, expand on it. So, you know, identify the next Sylvia Monster and Ethan Lead that are making their way through the, the ranks now, look at them as development play options for the next season. and try and grow that group from 7 or 8 deep to maybe 12, 14 deep within the next two or three years. And then all of a sudden, that's when, um, you know, if you can fill that much of your roster with local players that are up to it, then you can really pick and choose with what international players you put around them, much like we see with the other lots of the Brisbane Bandits or the Adelaide Giants who have that core group mm. of, uh, of local players. Yeah, yeah, just just finally, Dale. So, what's sort of been the feedback from the likes of the Wyatt Hoffmans and the Greg Cullens and the Caber Rodriguez in terms of their actual time here in Auckland, their experience with the club, their experience with the ABL? Has it been an enjoyable one for them? Oh, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I've had a direct conversation with uh, the three that you mentioned, particularly. I know Tex Biggers got up and spoke um, after the game to, to everyone that was involved in Adelaide. And, Talked about the experience, how much he's enjoyed himself here, made some lifelong friends. Um, you know, I was just disappointed that it, it finished. You know, they were hell bent on, on going one more week and having a crack at winning that shield. Um, you know, the, the, the weather frustrations were were obvious, and there's nothing anyone can do about that. That certainly did play a part, and I'll be honest with you, there were times where some of the players were questioning whether this was the best move for them coming out to see when they're sitting here trying to find a venue to play at because to train at because it's you know places around the water or it's continuing to rain. That was a challenge, a big, big challenge for the team. But yeah, I think they really enjoyed the experience here. Most you know, as, as almost all New Zealand uh, touring sides to New Zealand say, you know, we're very hospitable here. Um, you know, we're friendly people, it's a lovely country to be in a you know, a, a nice place to be and um, I, I had to a couple of chats with Jason Blanchard. He's you know, he is actually raving about the experience here. I think we saw him 
take a massive step forward in his career, and you know that'll have implications in the future. You know, Yoni Hernandez and Jared Koenig went to majors after playing here in, in the last season to Otago took, took part in, and you know that encouraged those organisations to want to do more, send players back out, and, and see the benefits of investing. That's what it is; it's an investment for those teams. Uh, investing in sending their players out here, and I'm sure the Park Racing Rangers guys at Sun Round will, will see the benefits that they expected to see, but yeah, I'm, I'm, there's some tangible stuff there too, and you know, I think that's an ongoing relationship that we'll see uh, for the years to come. Well, Dale Budge, congratulations on a, a difficult, trying but successful season. And thank you for your time here on SEN over the ABL season. And we look forward to catching up with you in a couple of months when the basketball season goes and the Auckland Tour Tata are back in the in the New Zealand Basketball League. So thank you. No, thanks, Ward. I appreciate your support personally and, and the support of the station too, mate. You've been amazing all season. And yeah, pleasure. So thank you very much. It is 18 minutes away from 10 o'clock. You're listening to SENZ. We'll take a break. We'll come back with more. Yeah, nice catching up with Dale Budge, uh, Mr. Baseball himself. I've got to say, I've done a lot of commentary over the years and been lucky enough to be a commentator at four Olympic Games and um, some pretty special moments here in New Zealand. I've got to say, though, I enjoy my time over the last couple of seasons doing Tuatara Baseball as much as anything I've done. I think part of it is the challenge of trying to learn a game and trying to call a game that you're not familiar with, that most New Zealanders are not familiar with. And as a commentator, there is a difference between watching a game on TV and understanding the players and the statistics and who's cool and who's not and who the legends are and who's in the Hall of Fame, et cetera, versus actually trying to call a game, understanding the decisions made by the managers, the little subtleties, the pitch count, the left-hander versus the left-hander, the right-handed pitcher versus the left-handed batter and why that might not necessarily always be a good idea or vice versa. Uh, the different pitches that are thrown, whether it be a slip or a curveball, a fastball, et cetera, change up um, to the base running, to bringing the infield when needed and uh, um, designated hitters and the order in which a batting lineup is set up. Um, it's 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 been fascinating and thoroughly enjoyed working alongside of Dale Budge and Mark Irwin. Um, commentary is a subjective thing. I don't expect everyone to like me. I don't expect everyone to hate me either. Um, you know, you've only got to, you know, I'm sure that if I brought Justin Marshall up as a rugby commentator, we'd get 50% of people telling me they loved him and 50% of people telling them that I hate him. And I think you can say that about every commentator. And so I've never been a big one um, for sort of bringing up commentators and making them talk back subjects because I just don't think it's fair. I'm in the game and it's um, very subjective. But just from a personal point of view, I've got to say I've thoroughly enjoyed my time with the Tuatara. And I'm lucky enough to go behind the scenes and it is done on the smell of a really rag at the moment. And as Dale mentioned, part of that is the fact that uh, COVID for two years really did put a bit of a handbrake on things just when they were starting to get some momentum. Um, and there's been a other, other little environmental factors too, but this is a very, very cool organisation. It's a very cool sport. And I don't think it's only going to be a matter of time. I think sometime in the next 10 years, I think we will get a genuine player make the major leagues who played their baseball here in New Zealand right through to their teenage years 
And I think when that happens, not dissimilar to what's happened with basketball and Stephen Adams, I think baseball will just take off. I think the biggest challenge facing baseball is just the infrastructure, keeping up with the demand, having the grounds, having the facilities. Um, but yeah, I've got to say, well done to the Tuatara, well done to Steve Mintz, very accommodating, well done to Regan Wood, Dale Budge, and all the rest of the front office. You are listening to SENZ. It is coming up to 11 minutes away from 10. We will take a break. We will come back with more after 10 o'clock. It's a bit of a free-for-all. We call it the wing it hour. We are going to open the lines. We are going to see if we can generate some talk and some discussion. And we'd love you to be part of the show. The telephone number is 0800 150 You can text us here on 8833. You're listening to SENZ on this wet Tuesday night. Hopefully everybody is okay in and around the Auckland Bay of Plenty and Northland regions particularly. More rain expected. Uh, look, it, it's um, been great to see everybody. At the end of the day, you can these situations can't you, you you sort of can rely on councils and local government and central government. But the reality is, you've just got to rely on each other. You've got to rely on community. Um, that's the only way you get through these things. And generally, that is the most reliable, most responsible way of doing it. And if anything good comes out of it, hopefully a little bit of unity does come out. Certainly it is the case out where I live, um, just north of Auckland, about 35 minutes from the centre of the city. I uh, Just out on the west coast, a little place called Moodywai, just around the corner from Piha, famous probably more for its golf club, I would have thought, Mirawai, and it's Gannett Colony. Anyway, look, um, coming up after 10 o'clock on the programme, we are going to have a little bit of a, a wing it out. We'll get Nick out of Melbourne. He's going to join us on the program. He's panelling tonight. He's bringing everything together. We'll catch up with Ben Francis, who's producing. He's sitting on his couch, about 20 kilometres north of where I'm currently sitting. But more importantly, we want you to contribute to the show. So you can text us here on 8833. You can phone the program on 0800 150 We'll also replay the interview that I did earlier tonight with middle distance great Rod Dixon and a really special special unveiling of a plaque for Cook's Garden in Whanganui, the home of the mile. You're listening to SENZ, Mark Watson with you, only for another hour through to 11 o'clock. Interesting night, interesting night in my broadcasting. I've done some um, challenging times on air over the years in different parts of the world on different devices, but I'm not sure I've done the entire uh, entire show, particularly on a mobile phone using very, very cool technology. Uh, due to the weather warnings that are in place and particularly in and around our Auckland SENZ studios. But I've got to say, we're starting to get comfortable with it. Initially, I sort of felt like I was in the middle of Lords and I was facing the new ball and I was swinging and missing outside off stump and thought at times I might find myself back in the pavilion, but we've managed to get there. We're managing to start to see the new ball. We're managing to start to get a bit of a feel. I'm sort of hoping that this hour we might start hitting a few fours and sixes. Anyway, anyway, enough of the cricketing analogies. Telephone number is 0800 150 is the number. Um, just any experiences you've had in and around the flooding here in Auckland, if you just want to tell your story or you just want to have a chat to someone, feel free. It doesn't need to be about sport. Um, I did bring up the fact that rugby have brought in this, again, this policy of, None of the current All Blacks are allowed to play any more than five consecutive games of Super Rugby before they they need to be rested. It's a ridiculous policy. It doesn't work. Uh, there's always going to be a natural rate of attrition anyway due to the gladiatorial nature of the game and players are going to miss games without them needing to 
be forced to have a break. And those that don't, I still believe there is enough downtime anyway with buys and then the break between Super Rugby and the All Black season for these players to be resilient enough. Uh, we owe it to the fans to have the best players playing every week. I can't think of another league in the world which has a policy like this in place. Now, in the English Premier League, admittedly with FA Cup, EFL Cup, which is the Carabao Cup, um, Champions League, yeah, you will see managers rotate players and rest their squad. But the majority of the time in the big games, the best players are playing. And we need to adopt that policy. Or rugby has continued to go down the gurgler as well. Um, big year, challenging year for rugby. But I just can't understand why the administration in this country just can't see it. Everyone else can see it, but this administration still can't see it. I want to know who these sports scientists, physiologists or coaches are who believe this is best practice and where is the evidence to suggest that resting players during Super Rugby benefits you at international level. Look at our record last year. Look at our record the year before. Look at our record in 2019. Even going right back to 216, 217. 0800 150 is the number if you do want to phone the program. We will take your calls. Uh, we've had limited uh, opportunity to do it tonight, more because of the fact that due to technology, we're broadcasting outside of the studio, but we can take your calls. We have got Nick in Melbourne, who's actually driving things. We've got Ben, who we're about to chat to now, who's my regular producer. He's doing his producing side of it, sitting on his couch chair, possibly in a kayak, just north of where I live. Ben, good evening. How are you? Definitely not in a kayak yet, Watto. I've just been you know, keeping, an eye with, keeping an eye on some of these updates coming through, and looks like we're in one of the windiest parts of Auckland, but one of the service reports said it wasn't, they're not expecting as much rain to hit us now, which is kind of a relief, but still a bit of a waiting game for the, the worst of it to come, I reckon. Yeah, we've got a bit of wind out here at the moment, but again, it's all coming from the east. So if you sit on the west, all it means is you get really good surf on the west coast and really bad average surf on the east coast. And I've never, I've never seen a, a, a summer or a last twelve months where we've had so many easterlies blowing here in Auckland. Yeah, quite remarkable. Very remarkable. Now, Ben, you were going to have a music theme tonight. It hasn't been as easy to play uh, music and various things for technology reasons, but you were going to go with number one hits here in New Zealand. So music that New Zealand bands, New Zealand music that's actually become number one in New Zealand. And I was going through the list that you originally sent through. It's amazing how many actually very, very cool songs we've actually had in New Zealand that have become number ones. And I'm always surprised that they're a number one here and yet they struggle to get any over they struggle to get any sort of airtime overseas. And really most of them, there's the odd exception, clearly, um, with Lord and OMC and stuff, but most of the stuff never really gets played overseas yet. A lot of American songs or British songs, which are, you know, worldwide hits globally, um, are number one here. You would think, well, if they can be number one here and a New Zealand song can be number one, why shouldn't the rest of the world like it as well? Oh, exactly. Uh, I don't know which other songs that I sent through would be your favourite, but 
there's some songs on that list which uh, have got a daring special place in, in New Zealand music history. One song in particular that comes to mind is probably about a 10, 12 years old was uh, Always On My Mind by Tiki Tane because that spent, it was well over a year inside the top 40, which I think is like the longest the song has ever spent inside the New Zealand charts. See, I couldn't actually sing you a line of that, but the moment it came on, I would know it. Yeah, and I think there's lots of things with some of these songs as well. You you might not recognise the title, but you play it and you think, oh, wow, yeah, I remember that song. Or you think, oh, wow, is that the song by Ike Oh, we're playing it. Are we playing it? We are playing it. Oh, of course, yeah. Know the song really well. Know the song really well. Nice job, Nick. Brilliant. Love it. Um, I'll get... What about Hal Bazaar? I mean, everybody knows Hal Bazaar. I mean, I'm surprised the Australians haven't. Um, I'm surprised the Australians haven't stolen Hal Bazaar because <laughs> that just comes on. And that's just one of those songs, isn't it? It's sort of a happy song, isn't it? Hal Bazaar, or it's just got one of those beats that it's hard not to like. You can be one of those guys that says, oh, "I can't really stand that song," and then you see them in a pub and they've had a few drinks, and that song comes on, and suddenly they're sort of, you know, moving the shoulders, bobbing their head, and sort of moving to it. I don't know, I don't think you would have seen this, Watto, but uh, there was an NBA player, Blake Griffin, who he was quite a, a big big name player when he was kind of entering the league. And he was doing these adverts for Kia, and it was about Kia kind of keeping out the, the consistency through the car through the years. And they went back to like 1995, I think it was, and that was the song they used for that particular advert. So it was kind of cool hearing like the Kiwi song on, a, uh, on an American advert. See, I think Slice of Heaven from Dave Dobbin, I think that made it big in Australia at the time. Um, not See, not even all the number ones here in New Zealand even get a lot of airplay sometimes in Australia as well, which surprises me because all the Australian songs certainly do get airtime here. Oh, mate, we, we like to give those Aussies quite a bit of love and they just like to take. Yeah, no, always on my mind. Black Box, Can't Get Enough, Counting the Beat, great tune that, one of the great pub favourites. Um, not familiar with Crawl Atlas. I probably am, but again, the name itself. How bizarre, of course. I got you in the air. Yeah, no, no I'm not. Yeah, I'd need to hear all of them, and then I'm sure I'd be 100% familiar with them anyway. All right, Ben, I will let you get back to sandbagging your house, making sure that no trees have blown down, and we will continue here on SENZ. Ben Francis, ladies and gentlemen. Right, it is coming up to eight minutes after 10. You are listening to SENZ 0800 150811. Uh, Nick, have we got you there? Yes, you do. You do. Are you familiar with many New Zealand songs? I, I am familiar with a few of them, and, and, and you did mention one before, so Slice of Heaven. That was a big hit in Australia. But maybe maybe this shows my age a bit, but it also is a good Kiwi reference. Um, it's because it was the theme song to the Foot Rot Flats movie, which was obviously... Yes, it was. And, and that's Murray Ball, who's a very famous New Zealander, well, at least in terms of the cartooning world. Yeah, no, it was. And, um, yeah, it's become iconic. And Dave Dobbin, and he's gone on and done a lot of great things um, with music, in fact, remarkable uh, singer-songwriter Dave Dobbin mm. um, with songs like Loyal and just absolutely iconic songs and been knighted recently, which has been great because you don't often see a lot of musicians getting knighted. It always seems to be sports people, but you think you think about the fabric of a country and 
I mean, you think of a land down under, don't you, when you come to Australian music? Yeah, absolutely. And you think, man, that's actually, that's as Australian as... As it gets. Yeah. That's as Australian Jandals and budgie budgie smokers. Exactly, and Vegemite. I mean, it's interesting you say that. That is a really good point because most musicians that you ever ever hear of that are being knighted aren't from any sort of the Commonwealth countries. It is sort of a, a UK only thing. So you're quite right there. That's an amazing achievement. Yeah, but you but you think you think all these sports people end up getting knighted in damehoods, and you think, yeah, but this music's going to go on for a hundred years. This music is ageless. This music takes you back to a time and a place. This is iconic. Absolutely. This actually puts a smile on people's face, and it's actually part of the fabric of who we are. But no one seems to get. Maybe they don't want to get knighted. Maybe it's not called cool to be knighted as a musician. Oh, see, I. I... I'd, I'd, I'd like to say that that's, I'd, I'd find that hard to believe because I, I think certain honours for, for representing at the best level you possibly can everything that you are passionate about has to be something that you've got to be appreciative of, you know? So if, if you can be bestowed an, an award from royalty because you are the best at what you do... You, you, I mean, surely you'd be you'd be thankful and happy well, for it. I, look, I, I, I'm pretty sure Paul McCartney and Mick Jagger are quite happy with their uh, knighthoods, aren't they? Hundred percent. But it's amazing. Like you win a, you win a lot of Olympic medals in the UK, and everyone seems to be knighted now for winning Olympic medals in the UK. True. You think of all the great musicians they've produced. You go back, you look at the Led Zeppelins, you look at all those wonderful musicians, yep. and you just go, Jimmy Page, the greatest guitarist of all time, not knighted. Why is that? Why is that? Why is someone like a Mo Farah giving a knighthood for winning the five and the ten thousand meters? Yet the great Jimmy Page can't. Oh, I've never quite understood it. Anyway, maybe that's just the way society ticks over. <clears throat> you must be familiar with how bizarre. I am familiar with How Bizarre. In fact, I can give you a little slice of it right now if you'd like. Let's go. Let's go for it. Here we go. Pretty catchy, isn't it? Oh, it's a great tune. It's a great tune. I think one of, one of the things I love about that is just with that guitar riff, it, it immediately yeah. puts a, a pleasant picture inside your head. Like that to me paints a picture of me sitting somewhere sunny, maybe by a beach, cold drink in hand, and just, just I'm happy and chill. Yeah, no, it did well, boys. Out of just out of South Auckland here, um, you know, pretty much what they call the Otara Millionaires Club, and Otara is considered to be a pretty um, low socioeconomic suburb of Auckland. Um, so, you know, really great story. For, for, for that part of the city and again just because hope doesn't it it just says look it doesn't matter where you come from if you dream big and you've got a bit of talent you can still make it and mm-hmm. um, yeah and that, that's a classic example of it but it's amazing isn't it how certain songs from the moment you hear the first little rift automatically take you to a place you know, some songs take a little bit of time to build others like I mean you take Sweet Child of Mine from Guns N' Roses you take um, Thunder from ACDC you take I mean different but automatically that's almost the signature is in the opening two or three and little, you know it um, you know it that, that, that first that first lick hits from the opening guitar riff or the drums I mean say for example you've got In the Air of the Night from Phil Collins the minute you hear that drum spill you know yeah. You know where it is. You know you know exactly what song it is. It, it does. It takes you right to, to where it was. Okay, so what are your music tastes, Nick? We haven't spoken before. We haven't met before. You're paneling out of Australia. You're a member of SENZ, and this is sports yes. and entertainment, so we can talk some music. Excellent. Well, mu- musically, for me, I am I am I, I have a very wide gamut of things I'm, in, I'm, I'm into. I'm, I'm lucky enough... 
that I was brought up in a household that did play a lot of some of those progressive rock gods that you've already mentioned, your Led Zeppelins, your Pink Floyds, your Beatles, the Rolling Stones, mm. very sort of English-based rock and roll. And so from, from there, that obviously spilled out for me. And obviously being a younger kid, came through grunge in the 90s. And then for me, it's, it's uh, what I find most interesting is if it's got a great melody it, and it just has the right groove to it, any music can be appreciated and, and you can get behind anything, really. Yeah, and I find YouTube's a great little resource now where you can, you know, I've watched a little bit on NWA, I've watched a little bit more on Eminem and then that yep. sort of stems me into other sort of um, American rappers and then you sort of go hard into the gangster stuff and then yep. I come out of that actually sort of inspired to have a listen. I give it a decent listen. I suddenly, actually, I really do like that genre and there's only certain times that I'll play it. Yep. Um, I find myself going back and playing a little bit of Rod Stewart. I've got to take my son to an Ed Sheeran concert. He's only nine. It'll be his first concert. So, you know, I've enjoyed a little bit of Ed Sheeran, but we're making a point every time we get in the car that we're listening to it so that when he goes to the concert, he's familiar with he's it all familiar and the more it, I listen yeah. to it. I become, I actually, yeah, that song there is a bit of a dark horse. I really sort of do enjoy that. And you start to appreciate it. Um, I flew down to Wellington last year because I couldn't get to the Auckland concert because my band, my default setting has always been Guns N' Roses. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, for different reasons. But, you know, and I'll always go back to them. But yeah, like you, I've probably evolved a little bit in time. Oh, absolutely. But in saying that, like, certain classic things are are always going to be amazing. Like, one of the, the few things I was most upset about no, I got over it, but I was upset about it, was right before COVID started, I was I was travelling through America and I stopped in LA before I was coming back to Australia and I missed Guns N' Roses in LA by a day and, and that's one of those things where you're just like, ah, oh, if you could see them yeah. anywhere, where they started is, is, you know, that's one of those sort of dream gigs and I think that's what really good bands and really good musicians can do is they can get you excited to really know that when you see them, you know, the interactions you have with them, even if it's just one-off gig, that's something that's going to last and that's yeah. something you've got to well, remember. Yeah. yeah, it's my bragging rights because I saw them on the 19th of December, 1988, which was when they first came out. They came here and played under the big top in Auckland in front of 10,000 with the black leathers and the original lineup, and then sort of everything since has been much bigger on a much grander mm. scale. Uh, the big regret was not seeing Nirvana when they were here. Um, but yep. I've seen most, yeah, I've seen, lucky enough to have seen Soundgarden and Pearl Jam back in their day, et cetera. So, yeah, all good. Hey, look, um, I think what we might do is we'll take a little break. We might come back and replay an interview that I did earlier tonight. And I replayed it because I think it's different. I think a lot of um, older people particularly will appreciate it. It's quite nostalgic. Um, my guest is a very good speaker and well-respected and was a great runner of his own right. It's an interview I did with Rod Dixon. No, and it's not about him winning the 1983 New York Marathon and one of the great races. It's not about him winning um, a bronze in the 1500 metres in 1972 at the age of 21-22 or finishing fourth in the 5000 metre final in 76. It's actually about the unveiling of a plaque for Cook's Gardens in Whanganui. So we'll do that off the back of the break. It's extra time on SENZ. Unique occasion of Whanganui and Cook's Gardens being recognised by World Athletics. It's um, being given what they call the World Athletics landmark plaque. At the same time, our athlete of the century, Sir Peter Snell, was basically given legend status by World Athletics. The man who unveiled those plaques is my guest on the program. He was a bronze medalist at the 1972 1500 metres at the Olympics. 
and of course the famous New York Marathon in 1983, the great Rod Dixon. Rod Dixon, good evening, welcome. Good evening, Mark, and everybody. Uh, and, you know, out to the New Zealand community, because Auckland's going through incredible, incredible um, challenge. And we, the New Zealanders, are supporting them with blessings and prayers and, and everything. So, yeah. Yeah. Now, Rod, you've recently been up on the North Island. Um, it all culminated in this uh, great privilege of you being able to unveil these World Heritage plaques and these landmark plaques by World Athletics. But that's yes. not the only thing you did when you were here in the North Island. It gave you an opportunity to catch up some good mates. Oh, absolutely, Mike. It was just uh, incredible. Um, so, uh, first of all, uh, I think probably, I mean, obviously the first thing was family and uh, it was great to have the time with the family uh, after uh, a couple of years of being kind of, you know, here and there. And then, um, and then wonderfully, uh, July, uh, January, January 12th uh, with John Walker for his 71st birthday. Uh, and that was very, very special. Uh, to be invited by Helen, Lady Helen, we should say, Lady Helen and the family uh, to share time uh, with John and, and uh, to, to see him blow out the candle and the cake and, <laughs> yeah, and, and also too to share special memories, which John responded to with, you could feel it, you could feel the energy, you could feel the emotion. He wasn't able to quite express it but he still uh, was able to share that moment with us all. And for, for those who are listening, and I'm not sure, but our, our great Olympic hero, Sir John Walker, uh, is into his 16th year of Parkinson's, and, and it's, um, it, it's a heartbreaker, but the fact is that it's always great to be with him and to hug him and to share time with the family. Uh, yeah, mag magical. Uh, I went on to Tauranga to see um, uh, Julian Oakley and Santana, the great New Zealand uh, middle distance runners, and our legend, uh, Kevin Ryan and his wife, Jeanette. And Kevin has finally retired from making shoes for champions all over the world with New Balance and Reebok and Adidas. Uh, just an incredible, and of course, in his day, fifth at the Boston uh, Boston Marathon, uh, 1973, uh, representative uh, at the Pacific Conference Games in Canada, uh, 74 Commonwealth Games in, in uh, Christchurch, one of our real legends, and um, trained by Barry McGee, um, very uh, fabulous guy, um, and Kerry Hill. Kerry Hill was one of our greatest coaches of sprint and sprint short distance. So wonderful to catch up with Kerry and the family and and Vanera uh, uh, had a birthday. So it's just been just a magical, magical uh, New Year, Christmas, New Year, and catching up with these amazing friends. And now I'm back in Nelson and ready for a challenge. Uh, we're going to be putting together the Kids Marathon program together with uh, our new mayor here in Nelson, uh, the Honourable Nick Smith, 
and wants to ensure that every, every kid, well, we, we should say no kid left behind. Every kid in elementary school gets the opportunity to participate in ABC, which is Agility Balanced Coordination. So it's just been incredible, Mark. I want to talk about Cook's Gardens because it's been 61 years since Peter Snell broke the world record for the mile there in a time of 354.4, beating Herb Elliott's world record. It's a venue that has seen 75 athletes break sub four minutes for the mile and World Athletics commemorated it by giving Cook's Gardens a landmark plaque and giving Sir Peter Snell a World Heritage plaque posthumously under the category of legend. What are your memories of Cook's Gardens and just how special is this place? Oh, well, you said it all there, Mark. Um, it is um, 75 athletes have run the sub four minute mile there. Um, it, it, I went there in and I should say 1971, <laughs> last century. Um, so it was really a significant moment when I was invited there. And in, those, in that time, Tony Polhill had won the British 1500 metre title. And when they called me and they said, we want this young boy from Nelson, I hadn't done anything really. And, and Russell Sears called me from Wanganui and he said, we want to invite you because we think we can run the, we can host a four-minute mile. And I, I went up and I was just overwhelmed by the, the generosity of people, the, the wonderful feeling, the warmth of people, the community who were so enthusiastic. And, of course, in those days, the cycling track was around the, the, the grass running track and so running and cycling. Uh, Ron Cheatley, Ron Cheatley, who is a legend in cycling, he, he was there and, and, of course, he's still there. Um, but it was just incredible. And we ran the mile and I won the mile in four minutes, zero, zero, zero point one. So I was one hundredth of a second off breaking the four minute mile. And that was, <laughs> that was pretty devastating. I... I, uh, but nevertheless, it, it sparked a whole new era. And Kevin Ross was a, a, a New Zealand 800-metre champion, 1,500-metre champion. And really, and then, of course, in 1970, Dick Quacks uh, won a silver medal at the Commonwealth Games in Edinburgh. And it just sparked off a whole new generation of running inspired by Peter Snell, Murray Hilberg, Bill Bailey, Barry McGee, these incredible people who had set the world by one mile world record and Olympic champions and Olympic record holders. It was just a whole new era. And wonderfully, talking with Santana, who ran a brilliant race, 354.8, to win the Cooks Classic. And uh, he's probably on his way now to Melrose Games and New York and the Boston race. And, but, you know, these young kids today, they appreciate the heritage and the history of Wanganui. And I said to Russell Sears, I said, Russell, this has got to be the home of the mile. I know everybody wants Italy Road and Sir Roger Bannister, but I said, New Zealand 
has a very unique stadium here at Cook's Gardens where 75 runners have run under four minutes for a mile. And that, in our sport, is significant, really, of uh, any other what's going on in the world. Uh, yeah, Rod, it's interesting because people still might not realise this, but almost three, many, three times as many people have climbed to the top of Mount Everest and have run sub four minute miles. I mean, these days, if you've got a lot of money, if these days, if you've got a lot of money and you're, and you're sort of fit, you can always pay to be taken to the top of Mount Everest. You cannot buy your way. You cannot buy your way through a sub four minute mile. It knows no names. It knows no reputation, socioeconomic backgrounds, religion, race or creed. Right. I love it, Mark. You've done your homework because, yes, and you know that um, I, I was inspired by Sweden and Hillary and, and he became a, he was the patron for the Kids Marathon running program. I could go and, and have a, a cup of tea with him in his house in Remuera. And, and, and I, I said to him one day, and that was when he was still alive, that twice as many people have now climbed Mount Everest and have run a sub four minute mile. And he was, he was very aware of that fact. Uh, I think he was a little disappointed about what was going on and the, and, and the, um, uh, the, the aftermath of all these people climbing, especially, you know, garbage and everything else left on the mountain. He was a bit, a bit distraught about that. I'm hoping that they have made improvements on that. But it is, as you say, Mark, um, we, we, you know, you can, anyone can climb Mount Everest now, uh, but you can't, you've still got to do the hard work uh, to, to run a sub four minute mile. And, and, and of course, you know, when Roger Bannister did it in 1952 and, uh, and then opened the floodgates to, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, John Landy from Australia, then breaking it. And then, of course, you know, later on, Jürgen May and, and, and the history of it is just fascinating. And that's why, you know, Mark, with my kids' running program, we have 26.2 miles to the marathon. And the final, the final mile is a significant moment for these kids. And in New Zealand, kids are starting to talk about 26.2 and running the mile. And so I want that, gener the next generation to know that the mile is very, very special. Uh, is a very special event and a very special uh, historical heritage moment for our sport. Where were you? I mean, I would imagine you might have just been in your teenage years or maybe 11 or 12 at the time when Peter Snell broke that mile in 1962. And how big a story was it and how did it change athletics in this country? Yes. Well, I was, I was 10 years old and just, just and we were actually, I was in the school athletics but we weren't able to join a running club which had Harriers and and track until you were 12. But certainly, at 10 years old, I was the fastest 100-meter runner in our school. And wonderfully, our fourth-grade teacher was a runner. And he told us about the history. He told us about running. And we all thought that running was fabulous. And the whole school would go out and run right around the school ground. Every lunchtime, they... 
after the after the uh, recessed bell for lunch, you had to sit down and have your lunch. But after that, they would have a they, we had a fire bell that rang, 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 and every all the kids got up and ran round the school ground. And I think Monday, Wednesdays, Fridays, clockwise. Tuesdays and Thursdays, counterclockwise. So you know it was very much uh, run, jump, play, fun time uh, for us kids. And running was very much part of the culture of the school that I grew up in. You're listening to SENZ. The great Rod Dixon is my guest on the program after Cook's Garden in Wanganui is recognised by World Athletics and Peter Snell also recognised under legend status by World Athletics. It's a funny thing though, isn't it, Rod, when you look at New Zealand and its history in athletics, these days a lot of athletes will go to altitude, but in the 60s, in the 70s, a lot of international runners came to New Zealand to train. One Tree Hill would come and run Arthur Lydiard's famous Waiatarua, and the Waiatarua is basically the Waitakere Ranges. I've always thought that's another loop that should be recognised, whether it be recognised by world athletics or whether it be recognised here by the council, by Auckland or by Athletics New Zealand because that in itself is a very historical loop. That was very much a key part of the diet for that Lydiard era and was pretty much every Sunday, every day, every week of the year and when you read the Lydiard stories, you read your histories, you read Rod Dixon's, John Walker's, you'll always find the word Waiatarua, the 18 mile or or the 18 or the 22 mile loop that Lydia had, had you guys run or that future coaches had you run? Yes, there was a, it was, I remember I came up uh, from Nelson with a guy called Ross Parsonage, who really, he was <clears throat> already a marathon runner at a young age. He just was a, he just able to run like Forrest Gump. You know, he was just amazing. And I remember we came up and we went up to Waitarua. Uh, I think I don't think we ran the 18 or 20, but I think it was a 15 miler. And <clears throat> I was, I, I, you know, we went to the waterfall where Snell and Helberg and Bailey and Lydia all took their, splashed their water and drank the water. And that was, that was incredible. It was an incredible feeling that you were in their footsteps and drinking the drinking from the fountain, you know, well, it was a creek <laughs> or a, a little uh, um, a waterfall. And, and all that was just very, very fascinating. And also, too, I mean, uh, at the domain, the, the one-mile loop around there, that that became famous from runners. And runners went all over the world would come and run that. And also, too, One Tree Hill. There was a loop there. And, and over the stone wall, you know, like they, they did cross-country back in the England days 200 years earlier. And so and, and New Zealand does have a very historical uh, uh, journey for running. And, uh, and wonderfully, you know, the, the Auckland Marathon and the uh, Queenstown Marathon and the Hawke's Bay Marathon encourage uh, those people who come from overseas to run those races to encourage them to go to those historical or heritage points so that they too can join the journey. I mean, my big thing was, of course, to, to run the Fifth Avenue Mile in New York, to run the Philadelphia Distance Run, to run the Cascade Runoff in, in, uh, in, 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 in uh, Oregon, um, to go to where uh, Bill, Bill Baum and 
the coach of the Oregon four by one mile relay team there. So all these moments are there. And of course, my special moment was to run on uh, Ipley Road. Ipley Road, to run on the actual track that Roger Bannister ran. So all these moments, young kids today have got to be seen to be connecting to their past because it is part of their future. Yeah, it's interesting too, isn't it? I mean, arguably, when you look at athletics, I mean, the name that stands out amongst all in terms of his contribution is Arthur Lydiard. And everybody thought that Arthur Lydiard, well, he went out there, he did a marathon twice a day, and he came up with this optimal training mileage of 100 miles <laughs> a week. And that's been disputed. Some people say, look, probably 80 miles, but that's not the point. What people forget, and I'll get you to comment on this, what Arthur Lydiard actually gave the world was periodization, wasn't it? We hear the word, yes. we want you to peak. We want, we're in a training phase. We're in a build phase. Well, that was Lydiard, wasn't it? Base work, strength yes. work, speed work. Yes, yes. And, and and that was the, if we say, that was the foundation. That was the foundation of the pyramid. And and, uh, and, and incredibly, and I was, and I, if I may, uh, Lorraine Moller, an absolute legend, uh, pioneer woman running along with people like Millie Sampson and uh, Anne Smith and... and Val Robinson, who, you know, redefined the woman's ability to run uh, more than a mile, you know, because in those days they weren't allowed to. Um, and so Lorraine has been able to carefully uh, redefine and, and, and use the Lydiard system, the Lydiard principles and philosophy, and have built it to a certification program for people all over the world to become aware of what is required and to balance it. And so the Lydiard principles and process continue through these incredible people like Lorraine Moller and other coaches around the world. And, and really, no one has been able to say, well, we've got a better system. No one has been able to create because Lydiard was way before his time. And I, and I got to give Percy Cerati who trained uh, Herb Elliott in Australia, he was very much too like a Lydiard. And when you looked at this idea and Fran Stample, who created the Parklick system, and, and all this together have allowed athletes all over the world to be where, what they are today. No doubt about it. No doubt about it, Mark. Well, Dixon, as always, an absolute privilege and a pleasure to have you on the program, mate. Greatly appreciated, and congratulations on being given the honour of unveiling those plaques at Cook's Gardens over the weekend. Thank you, Mark. The great Rod Dixon there. It is amazing, just the absolutely iconic pieces of geography, uh, tracks that we have in this country, that if you go back through the history of athletics, were a big part in the establishment of the sport when really the whole jogging movement, the whole running revolution took off towards the end of the 1960s and well into the 70s, whether it be One Tree Hill, whether it be Cook's Gardens, the famous Waiatarua, and I'm sure that every little community around the country has that loop, that famous running loop, that one loop that the famous runner out of your town ran. You're listening to SENZ now. Eddie Jones, newly appointed Wallaby rugby coach, has had his first press conference. Let's bring you the audio. Yeah, well, I think there's a couple of things. Firstly, I reckon we've got to draw a line in the sand of where we've been 
and work out where we want to go and have that picture in our head and I've just told you the sort of side we want to be. And then everyone needs to roll their sleeves up. So if you're cooking sausages down at Willoughby number eights or you're, you're thinking about getting a stand subscription, do it. We need people that want to support rugby. You know, ideally imagine the first round of Super Rugby and we've got record crowds at every game. Yeah, what sort of message does that send to the rugby community about Australian rugby being revitalised again? But we can't do it by ourselves. The team will do their bit, but we need everyone in the rugby community to, to find a bit more. And they can, and there's plenty of people who, who love rugby when the Wallabies win. So we're going to win, but we need them to, to maybe help start, start it a little bit more. So we need everyone to do their bit in rugby. We've got to win the World Cup. Our target's to win the World Cup. We win the World Cup, it changes things for, for rugby in Australia. So our target's to win the World Cup, then we'll worry about what happens after that. And to win the World Cup, yeah, we're going to take this talented group of players who are going to have to work together uh, to make a team that has a competitive edge over the rest of the world. And if you look at world rugby at the moment, there's six teams not separated by, by a, a cigarette paper. Yeah, they're, they're so tight and the team that learns the most over the next nine months will be the team that lifts the uh, William Webb Ellis Trophy in, in Stade de France on the 28th of October at about 11pm. And we're intending that to be us. Um, and then, then from that, kids will want to play rugby. You know, you saw out there, we went out to school, out, the kids there, there were Year 7 kids, most of them played soccer, you know, because they watched the Socceroos, they're excited about what the Tildes are going to do in the, in the Women's World Cup. Uh, and there was a small number of rugby. When we were at school here, when Gary and Mark and Glenn and Storzy were here, you know, it would have been the opposite. They were all rugby kids and a little bit, a few kids that play, play soccer. So we, we need to create role models and we need to create heroes for the young kids. No, I think it's pretty important. It just uh, <laughs> when I was joking there with Googie, it reminded me of... of uh, because we're playing Dunedin, aren't we? Uh, when we won it, or we retained it, or I think we won it, I can't remember. Won it? We won it. 2021 in Dunedin. Uh, and Googie was part of that. And the party we had afterwards was fantastic. Uh, and the, Steve Larkham, who's one of our super rugby uh, coaches now, was brilliant on that day. The way he uh, manipulated the, the space against the Kiwis. And, and that's a big target for us because... We know as, as Australians, if we can take New Zealand, then we're in a good position to take the World Cup. So we'll certainly be prioritising that. But again, it won't be the be-all and end-all because the World Cup is, is a major tournament. But certainly, you know, we've got a home game against them in Melbourne uh, where we ha hope to have a sell-out crowd, which will be a great occasion. And we know that uh, the last time the Australians played there, you know, the referee made a difficult decision at the end of the game. Um, and he's still recovering from it. Um, and Australia went close, and it's a game. It's a it's a ground, Melbourne cricket ground, where Australia traditionally play well. Um, so that you know we we can get the lead in the series, then then go to Dunedin. You know what a fam fabulous place to win back the Bledisloe Cup. So that's the picture in the head, mate. Well, you know I think the Kiwis have done really well, really well. You know they went through that tough period last year uh, where. Yeah, if they lost that game in Johannesburg, there might have been a change of coach. And they battled through, won the rugby championship 
and then had a really good end of season tour. Um, and they've gone through that bit of transitional period where they've had a, you know, a great, a great team from 2012 to 2016. You know, maybe coming off a little bit. 2017 to 2019 and now they've had to rejig the team. So I think they've done really well. You know, they've always got great talent coming through and I'm, I'm sure we'll see that see that in Super Rugby. Uh, good coach in Ian Foster, good support coaches in, in Joe Smith and, you know, the young bloke uh, from the Crusaders. Um, yeah, he does a good job there. So, yeah, I think they're in a pretty good spot but we're coming after them, you know. We're going to be chasing them down the street. And that's a good thing. And we want that rivalry to be tough. And I think New Zealand want it as well. So we'll make sure we're chasing them. We are coming up to the hour of 11 o'clock. We're pretty much done and dusted. Got to say, outstanding job being done by Nick on the panel in Melbourne. Ben Francis sitting on his couch somewhere just north of where I live. On some very testing and tricky conditions as the storms continue to hit the upper part of the North Island. Just interesting hearing Eddie Jones at that press conference. I love the way he is so complimentary of Ian Foster. Uh, nobody in this country believes Ian Foster is the right guy for the all-black job, but there he is telling us how great he is. You almost feel like it's sort of um, the Trojan horse, isn't it? The Trojan horse. Uh, yeah, we're not going to be sucking into that one. I don't think anybody believes New Zealand's going to win the Rugby World Cup. In fact, to give Australia more chance of winning the Rugby World Cup than they give us, much easier side of the draw. Um, Eddie Jones is an unknown quantity. Um, Australia haven't bought into a four-year plan like us. And so, hey, watch the space. Anyway... Again, special thanks to Nick, special thanks to Ben. If you are travelling around the country, do take care, particularly if you live in the Bay of Plenty, Auckland and Northland regions. It's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure.